you got white men sailing around, I mean, in space right now as we talk. And, uh, yeah, hooking up all kinds of stuff, I mean, to, you know, to tap into people's telephones and all that. You see what I mean? Yeah. They're always up to something on a grand scale. I don't know nothing about, you know, being no astronaut and staying up in space, I mean, for three months. At home, boy, I mean, he's just standing there saying, you know, trying to slip some uh, extra can of Red Bull in his jacket. You know, that's his accomplished for the next two years, right? floating around in space, been there three months. All kinds of technical stuff around them. All kinds of stuff that they're doing spacewalks out there and whatnot. Hooking up all kinds of stuff, running the world. And just like I said, now pan that camera from that <laughs> back down to Earth. Homeboy. Man, I'm going in here and getting me another can of Red Bull. So many of us are still in wonder this morning, scientists included, because of the new images taken by NASA's Webb Telescope. It's brought mankind to the deepest corners of the universe. The extremely detailed pictures show stellar nurseries and individual stars. On the line with us this morning is University of California, Berkeley astrophysicist Alex Filipenko. He is so excited. He has agreed to join us in California to talk about the implications of all these images. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor. Well, good morning, Rachel. It's a true pleasure to be here because it's such an exciting time for astronomers and I think for the general public seeing all these fantastic images. Yes, we personally made a rare exception at our family dinner table last night and allowed screens so we could show our kids these images. I imagine this also dominated dinner conversation at your house. Oh, wow. Well, you know, these are just incredible. So I think everyone is just aghast at uh, what the quality is from the Webb telescope. Right. They're so clear. The light, so spectacular. Is there a particular image you found most revelatory? Well, I like the first one that they revealed on Monday because it shows these distant galaxies, uh, thousands of them, in a patch of sky no bigger than a grain of sand held at arm's length. And if you extrapolate over the whole sky, the implication is that there are between 100 billion and a trillion galaxies in the observable part of our universe. And each of them has billions, if not hundreds of billions of stars. So those are pretty amazing numbers. What clues do these images offer about the beginnings of the universe? Well, that's one of the main things that we hope to study with Webb uh, with more detailed images of this type. We hope to see the very first stars and galaxies forming about 13 and a half billion years ago, just a couple of hundred million years after the birth of the universe, the, the moment we call the Big Bang. And explain how these pictures compare to images provided by Hubble, the older telescope. Right. So Hubble is a fantastic device, but it operates mostly at what we call visible or optical wavelengths the wavelengths of light that you can see. The Webb telescope is tuned for the infrared. So that's mm -hmm. commonly called heat radiation, like from hot coals in a fire. 
Uh, and what's great about the infrared is that it gives a complementary picture to what Hubble provides. And so looking, for example, at extremely distant galaxies, most of their ultraviolet and visible light gets shifted into the infrared because of the expansion of the universe. And so the only way to detect these infant galaxies and the first stars ever to have formed is to look at infrared wavelengths. Hmm. So we explained to our kids last night that this is significant, all these images, in part because we just keep learning how big the universe is. And my 10-year-old insists that because of this, there must be other life out there. Not to put you on the spot, but what is your answer to him? Well, yeah, there's almost certainly other life out there. Whether there's a lot of intelligent life uh, is a different question. And I personally think it's quite rare, but we're likely not unique. So we will be looking for biosignatures in the atmospheres of planets orbiting other stars. That's one of the main exciting projects to be done with the web. And certainly I'm looking forward to those results. Maybe Astro we'll find that life is more common than, than some of us think. Oh, can't believe I almost interrupted that. But that's the most important part. Astrophysicist Alex Filipenko, thank you for your time this morning. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Orlando. Built for families, made for memories. Episcopal priest and civil rights leader Nelson Pinder died Sunday at age 89. As WMFE's Joe Burns reports, Pinder had a profound effect on his church and the city of Orlando. Nelson Pinder arrived in Orlando in 1959, an Army vet and Bethune-Cookman grad fresh from a seminary in Wisconsin. He asked an airport limo driver for a ride to the Episcopal Church of St. John the Baptist, but as Pinder said in a 2016 interview with WMFE, the driver turned him away because he was black. So they called a taxi for me, and I went into the restaurant to get a cup of coffee. They said, no, I can get a cup of coffee there. And so I knew that this was an opportunity for great missionary work. Orlando was. Over the next six decades, Father Pinder, who was rector at St. John the Baptist and an official in the Central Florida Diocese, fulfilled that mission, leading efforts to end segregation in society and the church, pursue equality and inclusion, and help people on the streets of Orlando. In the early 1960s, Pender led high school students in sit-ins at Orlando restaurants and drugstores. He pushed for voting rights, desegregation, and equal pay for black teachers. If you've got to make change, you've got to be a part of change from the inside, not the outside. So I felt that God has prepared me for this mission. So a lot of people looked at me and thought I was crazy. Whites and blacks thought I was crazy. Some of them thought I was going to be run out of town. Some of them told me, oh, you're going to get killed. Well, I said, you know, I'm not 33 years, but my boss was 33 when he died. I got a little time, yeah, left. I was 20, 26 when I came in. Pinder said he tried to teach people they could get along without fighting and solve problems once they really listened to each other. There were many people who were in authority who thought this was not the way to go. The way you go was to beat heads and, and put this person in their place and that in their place. The only place we have was the place in God's kingdom. And each one of us has to go there without fighting. Pastor Robert Spooney of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Institutional Church says Pender was a, quote, icon in the civil rights movement who was always there to help. I grew up in Orlando in Washington Shores. And he would always have his arms around the community, helping us get through different situations and circumstances. Father Charles Myers is the current rector at St. John the Baptist. 
He says Pender struck a balance between big-picture issues like equal rights and personal issues like being present and ministering to people on the street. The fact that we, as faith leaders who are organizers, are able to protest as we are for for women's rights and, and civil rights and gay rights and just rights in general as they are being stripped away is because this man laid the foundation in Orlando so that we could protest and fight for the rights in the 21st century. Longtime St. John's parishioner Cressida Jackson remembers Pender as a loving man. Father Pender had a way of being so that all of his congregation felt that he personally cared for them. Jackson says he baptized, married, and buried generations of families. I can hear in my head him saying about people that we lost before him, may they rest in peace and rise in glory. So I I know right now he's in glory. Pender is survived by his wife, a son, and several grandchildren. Joe Burns, 90.7 WMFE News. Or how about those killer bees that were going to attack America? We're almost certain they'll arrive this year. Schmidt expects the Africanized bees to reach Texas this year, cross into Arizona in about two to three years. He's concerned because the killer bee is overly aggressive. They will follow you for half a mile. The bees never came. The giant African land snail enjoys the simpler things in life. Just strolling, well, you know, sliding through vegetable gardens, munching on plants, maybe listening to a gastro podcast. You you see what I did there? They can grow up to eight inches and they have a reputation. They're one of the world's most damaging snails. Hundreds, maybe thousands of them are making themselves at home in areas of Pasco County, Florida, just north of Tampa. And now Pasco County is under a quarantine. The main problem we have with the giant African land snail is it's almost like a -a whack-a-mole. Dr. Bill Kern is an associate professor at the University of Florida who specializes in wildlife pest management. One female snail can lay 2,500 eggs a year. That's a lot. This is the third time these big snails have shown up in the state. Florida waged a decade-long battle against them. Officials thought they'd finally eradicated the snails last year, but no. Kern says this invasion of giant African land snails looks a little different from the last two. It is one of the domesticated varieties, maybe one that somebody had as a pet, possibly brought from overseas. Pasco County's quarantine also looks a little different from what you might expect. Humans are free to move around, interact. They can carry on their everyday activities so long as they're not involved in certain aspects of landscaping and gardening. No plant material can leave, uh, no yard waste can be removed from the area. To combat the slow but steady invasion, the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services is setting out snail bait in affected areas. The bait has a chemical that disrupts the snail's mucus production, leading to lethal dehydration. That's very serious for a snail. You know, they can't be dry. The department is also using trained dogs to sniff out snails. Workers have carefully scooped up more than a thousand or so so far. Now, when they're not being hunted, these big snails do enjoy eating materials other than plants, like paint, stucco, 
anything with calcium to build their shells. I'd say it was about two to three weeks ago, I had noticed some snails. I really didn't pay any attention to them. Jay Pasqua owns a lawnmower and equipment business in the quarantine zone. They haven't caused damage so far, but he was surprised by their number and their size. The largest one I saw so far was about six inches long. I would say it would be about the size of my fist. Um, it was kind of weird to see something that big. Though some may have the temptation to pick up these really large snails, although I don't know why that would be tempting, residents are warned, do not do it. They may look cute, but Dr. Bill Kern says they host a parasite that can be deadly to humans. The problem is when it gets into human beings, then it will end up in places like inside of the, the eyeball or in the brain. Potentially leading to meningitis, and no one wants that. So far, none of the snails captured had the parasite, but still do not touch the snails. Pasco County's quarantine has been in place for about two weeks, and Florida officials say it will take about three years before they can say all snails have been successfully removed. This time. You're dirt. We think you're dirt, Paul. Who is we? The West. All the superpowers. Everything you believe in, Paul. They think you're dirt. They think you're dumb. You're worthless. I'm afraid I don't understand what you are saying, sir. Oh, come on. Don't bullshit me, Paul. You're the smartest man here. You got them all eating out of your hands. You could own this freaking hotel, except for one thing. You're black. You're not even a nigger. You're an African, 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 African. Two and a half years into the COVID-19 pandemic, let's check in on the vaccination effort in Africa. Only a fifth of people on the continent are fully vaccinated. Plans to bring more doses to African nations have fallen short. Last month, the World Trade Organization reached a deal to relax patent protections so poorer countries could produce vaccines themselves. We're joined now by the co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, Dr. Ayoade Alakaja. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. To begin with, you work at the forefront of vaccine distribution and access for African nations. So just give us a snapshot of what the situation looks like across the continent right now. Well, I mean, as you say, I've been working over the last couple of years at the forefront, not just for access to vaccines, but for access to all countermeasures, um, which includes diagnostics and now treatments that, as they've become available um, to ensure that those in the low and low middle income countries of the world, many and most of which are on the African continent, have the same access to vaccines, diagnostics, which are tests and treatments like things like Paxlovid and, and other and oxygen, the very basic that people in the US, the UK, EU and other parts of the world have. Um, th that has been a deeply depressing role to be in really over the last uh, couple of years as we have seen that the high income countries of the world have clearly prioritised themselves but forgotten that this pandemic is affecting all of us. What does that inequality translate to in terms of human experience? You told the New York Times people are dying silently. 
people absolutely are dying silently. And thank you for, for, for talking about it in human terms, because I think, you know, we saw in the early days those awful images from New York hospitals, from the, from America and from hospitals in Brazil. And that was the measure of the impact. But what do you do in countries where you do not have health systems to be overwhelmed? So we have said for parts of the world and parts of Africa that, oh, well, they haven't had COVID. But that is not true. It is just we haven't had the cameras being able to roll the, that B-roll in, in hospital wards because those wards do not exist, in ICUs because in many communities, ICUs do not exist. So people have died silently. People have died at home. So many of these deaths have gone unrecorded. And therefore, there has been a silent pandemic a silent toll on parts of this world where the inequity in measuring the impact of the pandemic itself is pushing the inequity of access to the countermeasures and to the tools needed to prevent further infection. World leaders are sounding the alarm about the more transmissible BA5 variant. And in the fall, the US and other highly developed nations are expected to get boosters that specifically target that variant. Do you expect that those supplies are likely to reach African nations? Absolutely not. I mean, the vaccine doses are rolling out to the African continent, but far too little, far too late in many ways. You know, we were left at the back of the queue whilst the rest of the world has moved on. You know, the rest of the world is providing not just fourth boosters, you know, what we're calling the primary series plus a booster, but they're also now looking at variant adaptive vaccines. They're looking at the next generation of vaccines. There, of course, has been greed. There, of course, has been the sense of we must take care of our own first. And that is human nature. And any global leader, any president, any prime minister has a responsibility primarily to their own. But when you recognize that this virus is a virus, it is not a person, it is not a, uh, it, it, it is not a system, it is a virus that is airborne. And therefore, unless all of the world is safe and is protected from it, we will continue to see these waves. Now, today it is BA5. We don't know what it will be tomorrow. So it is self-defeating because to take care of one's own self should be to take care of the rest of the world and to help the rest of the world take care of themselves. Not charity, but global solidarity and partnership, I think, is what the world is calling for, which is lacking. What do you make of the World Trade Organization's deal that is supposed to make it easier for poor nations to access COVID vaccines? How much of a difference do you expect this to make? Sadly, in reality, it is very watered down. It is not going to help for COVID today. And it does not include tests and treatments. It is just for vaccines, very limited, very, very narrow for vaccines only. What we need is a broader agreement. And I understand they're going back to that negotiating table to work on tests and treatments. And until we can produce what we need in Africa, what we need in Latin America, what we need in Asia Pacific ourselves, we are always going to go back into this scenario because people's nature is to protect their own. So there will be export bans and various measures to stop 
whatever it is, be it a vaccine or a treatment, leaving the shores because people are trying to protect their own. So what we in Africa are saying is we need to be able to produce ourselves. We're not asking for permission. We're asking you to stop, to remove the roadblocks in the way. The scientists are ahead, but policy is behind and policy is what is holding the world back in this moment. And so having waged this fight for equity every day over more than two years of this pandemic, do you have any hope that this gap can be closed? <laughs> that, um, do I have hope? I, one must always have hope. Do I have hope that the equity gap can be closed? I think the equity gap is due to so much more that is fundamental within our systems. I think the equity gap is due to the fact that the global health and global development infrastructure is flawed and fundamentally broken. Many of the systems we're working with today, the Bretton Woods institutions, were put together post-World War II to fix Europe. Listen to what I just said. They were put together to fix Europe. And yet they're being applied to the rest of the world. They are not fit for purpose. They are based largely in high-income parts of the world. They are not fit for purpose for low and low middle-income countries. So what we must do is we must reshape, we must reimagine, we must rebuild the global health and global development architecture of this world to make it more inclusive, to make it such that the voices from the South can be heard and can be understood, where we build it again together for the good of the whole world, not just for some of the world, so that all may have a chance at life and quality of life, and the true definition of health. Dr. Ayoa Dayalakaja, co-chair of the African Union's Africa Vaccine Delivery Alliance, speaking with us from Abuja, Nigeria. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ari. White supremacy is the sickness. Over the last two years, the pulse oximeter has become a crucial tool for tracking the health of COVID patients. The small device clips onto a finger and measures the amount of oxygen in a patient's blood. Well, study out today adds to a growing body of research that shows the device can be inaccurate when measuring oxygen levels in people with dark skin tones. Craig Lamolt of member station GBH reports. Dr. Sandra Luby-Gordon found herself on the phone last year with a triage nurse at a Florida hospital. Luby-Gordon, who's a physician at Boston Medical Center, was arguing that her own son, who was very sick with COVID, shouldn't be sent home from the hospital. I said, um, but our standards, I said, I really believe he needs to be admitted. Well, yeah, he is looking pretty short of breath, but his oxygen levels are good. The nurse was basing that on what the pulse oximeter clipped to his finger was reading. But as a nervous parent, she'd been talking with her physician colleagues, and one of them reminded her of research showing the pulse oximeter tends to be inaccurate in people with dark skin tones. So I said, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And I said, on top of that, my son is, <laughs> this sounds strange, but very dark, very dark complexion. When he was given a more invasive test for measuring blood oxygen, it showed his levels were actually dangerously low. Her son was admitted and treated and ultimately recovered from COVID. But Luby Gordon says most other patients in that situation don't know about this. I have to be completely honest. I wasn't fully aware that there could be such a difference. Research published recently by scientists at Johns Hopkins University showed inaccurate results from pulse oximeters resulted in a failure to identify Black and Hispanic patients who were in need of COVID therapies. 
and a new paper in the journal JAMA Internal Medicine looked at other consequences of those inaccurate readings. It examined pre-pandemic data on how much supplemental oxygen patients of color receive. We were fooled by the pulse oximeter. Leo Anthony Selly of MIT is the paper's author. We were given the false impression that the patients were okay. And what we showed in this study is that we were giving them less oxygen than they needed. People of color have experienced higher rates of hospitalization and death from COVID-19 than white populations, according to the CDC. Selly says he can't say what impact pulse oximeters have had on that, but he says he's confident it's played a role. Selly says the issue points to a larger problem with how medical devices are studied and approved. The way we evaluate medical products is primarily based on trials that involve primarily white individuals. Several manufacturers of the devices dispute studies showing racial disparities. But scientists and engineers are working on new technologies that could revolutionize pulse oximeters in a way that would conquer the problem. Yes, so this is, um, this is our device. Um, At Tufts University, Associate Professor Valencia Kumsen filed a patent in May on a new version of the pulse oximeter. She explains pulse oximeters measure a patient's oxygen level by shooting light into their finger and measuring how much of that light is absorbed by oxygenated hemoglobin. The inaccuracy in dark-skinned people comes from the fact that melanin, which makes skin darker, also absorbs light. Kumsen says her device gets around that issue by measuring a person's skin tone. So that we can send more light if there's a higher level of melanin uh, present so that melanin doesn't become a confounding factor that obscures our results. Kumsen is black and says the story of the pulse oximeter and efforts now to redesign it point to the need for greater diversity in engineering and medicine. We're shaped by our environment and, and who we are and our identity, and that informs what type of research goes on. It's, it's, it's the people who do research who decide what research is done. Kumsen and other scientists have been pushing the FDA to take steps to address the problem. Last winter, the agency issued a warning that skin pigmentation and other factors could impact pulse oximeter results. Now the agency says it'll bring together expert advisors later this year to discuss the issue and what should be done to ensure the devices are accurate for everyone. For NPR News, I'm Craig Lamolt in Boston. racist attack of a black female was caught on camera. Here it is. I don't know. I just want you to scan this on the report. That's it. Yeah, so well, he's doing whatever he can. I think you should be a little bit nicer. I think you should shut the oh, I'm not. I won't. Oh. oh, you need to be nicer. You need to be nicer. I will not. You need to be nicer. Please, sir. You need to be There's more video. Here it is. I have to fight the cops later because some. Thanks, bud. You're arguing. 
You're sitting here arguing with me because I'm trying to pay for my. You racist. You, you, you Nobody's acting like do? a. What are you going to do? 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 What are you going is. It's not a black person. A black person is a nice, respectful person. Someone who acts like a is someone who starts tripping out. I told you to stop so, being mean to him. So you sound like a. Life no, no, no. No, no, no. I don't care that you work 12 hours. I don't care that you work 12 hours. It did get physical. The young lady that you saw was actually defending someone else against his aggression and rudeness, he then starts calling her the N-word. And then the proclamation of, well, no, 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 that doesn't mean black. Uh, it just means, and he made up something, to try and disconnect himself from the fact that he's racist. We know what you meant. Let's put up the picture of the victim here. This young lady is a recent high school graduate. Her name is Tamba Baba. Miss Baba plans to attend a police foundations program. The man's identity has not been released, but we do have this. Okay, there he is. Let's go back to the history of how this altercation started. Miss Baba says, and I quote, when I entered the store, I could already hear yelling, so I knew something was not quite right. The man paying for his stuff was being a complete blank hole to the worker. He kept going at it, and I kindly asked him to stop. The man, however, was not happy about me stepping in, she reported, which just caused him to throw racial slurs at me the whole time of our altercation. Tamba originally thought he was attacking the clerk, and she says she defended him because, and I quote, it breaks my heart that workers have to take that ish from customers all the time for no valid reason, she said. I've never felt this kind of way, and I'm truly hurt that I even had to say something to begin with because everyone deserves to be treated with some kind of respect and dignity. Isn't that fascinating? This young lady, a recent high school graduate, she sees an injustice of sorts, she decides to defend the individual who's being attacked. That's called heart. That's called leadership. That's called a dynamic human being. The new information reveals that the man was actually verbally assaulting another customer. Uh, Tamba explained how the situation escalated after she stopped the recording. She said, and I quote, he wanted to get physical with me and he tried to push me. So I slapped him across his face and dragged his body to the ground where I punched him again. Tama said, I'm all in favor that violence is not the answer, but that night it was. Words were not going through his head, so yes, I did punch him. So in other words, let's put up the picture of the white male again. He got his ass kicked by a recent high school graduate who happens to be a girl. That's what happened to him, all right? I wish I had the recording, I do not. Now, the irony is, that while she did get physical with him because of his aggression toward her, it's called self-defense, all right? You anticipated uh, an action against you and you took appropriate action to stop it. Uh, she's reluctant to get the police involved. 
Uh, what followed was an altercation that ended up when Baba crashed uh, to the ground, face first, chipping a tooth, scratching her face, and leaving her with a bloody lip. All right, so she got, um, she was injured in that physical altercation. It's unclear whether justice will be served, and here's why. Uh, the man left, she said, and police were called. When the officers got there around 8 p.m., they cautioned her that she could end up being charged with a crime because she got physical first, according to Ms. Baba. They suggested she might just want to drop this and move on. Isn't that something? I thought the police would be well aware, Ms. Lawrence, that if somebody is aggressively approaching you, you have the right at that point of self-defense. You don't have to wait for the physical attack in order to stop what you have interpreted as one pending. So tell me why I'm wrong here, uh, attorney. No, you're not wrong at all. The fact is that we are entitled to self-defense. And if you perceive a threat to your safety or the safety of another, you are entitled to engage in defense to protect yourself. And it seems that this gentleman was approaching her in a very hostile way and did put her in fear for her safety. So her response was appropriate. I think the officers do not want her to move forward because it likely would mean charges being pressed against him. Because in his charging toward her, that is constituting an assault. And while I do not know Kennedy in law, I would like to assume that that's a very basic principle that's universally held. And it really just shows you again that the system, no matter where that line is in terms of the border, it's not out here protecting black people and particularly black women. And also to see that that black woman had interjected herself in that situation to protect another, to stand up for someone, it just reminds me time and time again how we are willing to use our voices. We are willing to stand up and to speak up, yet who is out there protecting us? That's right. That's right. Uh, I, I say this often, you and I talk about it. Uh, black women are not supported or protected enough in this country or beyond, but we protect them here at Indisputable. Um, I'm very proud of this young lady, and I do hope she reconsiders filing those charges. Right now, racist actions by a few out-of-town artists on Sunday have officials at the Krasl Art Fair furious. The artists in questions won't be allowed to return. Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Lauren Moss. And I'm Terry McFadden. Today, Mark Peterson spoke to the victim in question. Mark, what can you tell us? You know, something so terrible really uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy here. In fact, 18-year-old Nicholas Gunn holds the title of Mr. Benton Harbor, won that in the Blossom Time community pageant. Uh, I pulled it out, start taking the picture, start slapping it down, yanking my hands down. I'm trying to lift it up. Last Sunday, 18-year-old Nicholas Gunn managed to capture video of a confrontation he had while covering the Krasl Art Fair for the Benton Spirit Community Paper. What is wrong with you? A couple of artists didn't want Gunn taking pictures of their copyrighted works. I understand what you're saying. Please don't Dude. touch him. Don't touch Dude. him. Nobody's touching Dude. him. Come on. Come on. Do it. Sorry. He's doing the same thing. I didn't touch you, man. Come on. You're not, you're not there was some chest bumping, some shouting. Gunn says he started recording shortly after two separate artists called him the N-word. 
when they're cussing at me and calling me the N-word, humiliating me in front of every all these people, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this, I'm, this is like the downest I've ever felt. You really... There were no physical injuries. The whole thing lasted about 2 minutes 40 seconds. By the time it was over, there were three police officers on scene. There were no arrests. Gun holds the title of Mr. Benton Harbor. There is a crown on his desk and perhaps a hole in his heart. As he recalled the theme of the speech he gave during the competition about advice he received from his family. They always tell me not to go across the bridge, never go to St. Joe, because they don't, they don't want you there. I serve, I serve in the community, and I, I, I love everybody. Despite the setback, Gunn says he'll continue to concentrate on great things his community has to offer on both sides of the bridge. And really is heartbreaking hearing from him. Mark Peterson live for us. Mark, thank you. All right. All right, Boston. This jersey that we wear today, it doesn't say Red Sox. It say Boston. Now at 5, leading Boston police into the future, Mayor Michelle Wu introduces the city's new top cop, police commissioner, and Roxbury native, Michael Cox. Cox takes over 13 months after Boston's last police commissioner was forced out. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Lisa Hughes. And I'm David Wade. The mayor says he has the experience to lead this department into the future. WBZ's Beth Germano is live for us in Roxbury tonight. And Beth, right there in the neighborhood where he grew up. Well, in fact, his former home is just down the street from this park where the announcement was made today. It was here he pledged to do things differently. And as a veteran law enforcement officer, he has seen the best and the worst of this department. It's good to be home, you know. This is where I'm from. This is where I belong. You lived all He's Boston's new top cop, Michael Cox, returning to the Roxbury neighborhood where he grew up. And now embraced by those he will serve with an immediate priority, returning officers to community policing. The reality is, is that we need each other and we need to be around people and officers need to get out of the cars and, and start to move around and, and actually engage residents again. He arrives at a difficult time for the department, an overtime scandal, a one-time union president in jail for sexual abuse of children, and deep mistrust of the police in some neighborhoods. We need to learn from one another so we can be way more responsive in, in a way that, that we're never over-policing or under-policing because of these misunderstandings. A superior intellect and somebody that came from the neighborhoods who knows everybody, so great guy. He's both an insider and outsider, which is what Mayor Michelle Wu says community input was seeking. He rose through the ranks to superintendent in 30 years on the Boston police force, his name perhaps best connected to a night in January 1995, when fellow Boston officers mistook him for a gang member during an investigation and severely beat him. He sued the department and addressed it up front today. The reality is, you know, I, I was a victim of that, but that's not who I am. He's turned that into a positive. You know, he's not holding anything back. But his last three years as chief in Ann Arbor, Michigan, were met with questions about a heavy-handed management style, which he chalked up to rookie mistakes. 
And I learned from that. And I, and I made some mistakes. And I owned up to mistakes. I also personally spoke with the mayor and town administrator and have heard uh, nothing but praise and regret that, that he might leave. Now, Michael Cox will be sworn in August 15th. And coming up at 6 o'clock, a community activist who doesn't always see eye to eye with City Hall responds to the appointment. Reporting live from Roxbury, I'm Beth Germano, WBZ News. But this is gun country. Can he own a handgun in New York City? Out here, I hardly know a man who doesn't own one. And I'll tell you something. Unlike your city, we can walk our streets and through our parks at night and feel safe. Muggers operating out here, they just plain get the asses blown up. We'll talk now about the case of Jose Alba, a 61-year-old bodega employee in Hamilton Heights, who earlier this month was attacked at work by a man with a knife identified as Austin Simon. After a struggle, Alba got hold of the knife and stabbed Simon at least five times, as it's been reported in the Daily News and elsewhere. Simon died, and Alba was arrested and charged in the fatal stabbing. Now, Alba's supporters, like the United Bodegas of America, insist that this was a case of self-defense. They're pushing Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to drop the serious charges against Alba. They've also pitched a stand-your-ground law like the one cited by George Zimmerman in Florida after he killed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin back in 2012. So we'll get into the charges against Jose Alba, the supporters' appeal to D.A. Bragg, and the plea for greater protections for bodega workers in general, and also another threat to the bodegas and their customers as well, all these so-called fast delivery stores or dark stores. Black, destitute of light, devoid of color, enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black. Pretty good with them words, ain't you? Soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. Dark stores springing up in our area. And with us now is Fernando Mateo, founder and spokesman for United Bodegas of America, an organization providing advocacy and support for bodega owners through the city. Some of you may remember that Fernando Mateo was also in the Republican primary for mayor of New York, which he lost to Curtis Lewa last year. And he has also represented um, taxi drivers and black car drivers uh, in New York for many years. Fernando, welcome back to WNYC. Good morning. Brian, good morning. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. What What more would you like to add about the incident by way of background for our listeners who may be hearing the name Jose Alba for the first time? Jose Alba was a, uh, is a bodega clerk uh, who went to work like he did every morning, uh, expecting to put in a hard day's work. And uh, unfortunately, a uh, man ran behind the counter, attacked him. A very young man ran went behind the counter and attacked the 61-year-old man, uh, basically looking to kill him. And uh, Jose Alba picked up a knife and defended himself. And unfortunately, uh, uh, Simon died. So in, in essence, this is, this is a case where the video speaks for itself. The videotape clearly shows that Jose Alba was not looking for trouble, that Jose Alba was backing down and that Jose Alba was just wanted this man to go away. So the judge and the jury in this case will be the videotapes that everyone has seen nationwide. 
There's no judge or jury in New York City that will find Jose Alba guilty of murder. It was clearly self-defense. We met with D.A. Bragg. We went over the situation with him. And listen, he's in his right to say that he is investigating. And he needs to finish his investigation before he makes a determination, which is very good for us because that means that he has not already judged this man as being a guilty man and that he's going to prosecute. What it means is that he could drop the charges today, tomorrow, or the next day. But in all fairness to him, he has a duty to the city of New York and to the people of New York to properly investigate any crime that he believes has been committed. Okay? So, in essence, what we're saying by all of this is Jose Alba will be uh, exonerated. The charges should be dropped or will be dropped, and that's what we're looking for. We're looking for justice for Jose Alba. Is it your understanding of how the legal system works that a DA would charge somebody before conducting a full investigation? I mean, obviously there was there was a bloody and even fatal incident um, that took place there before the video emerged. They didn't know exactly what happened, so maybe they took Jose Alba into custody. Uh, but he did get charged with murder. Now you're saying it's reasonable to expect the DA to take some kind of action and then to conduct the full investigation, and you're confident that these charges will be dropped. But is that the way it works? That's the way it works. In essence, uh, there, there's, a, there's a body. Someone was killed. Uh, someone killed that person in self-defense. So, you know, while the dust settled, uh, I think D.A. Bragg believes he was doing the right, the right thing by arresting uh, Jose Alba. We believe that maybe he should have waited a little bit before arresting him, you know, looking at the evidence. But, yeah, and we believe that one mistake was made, and that was the arrest of Jose Alba. Now, having said that, well, he doesn't want to make a second mistake. He doesn't want to... Uh, make a mistake by either uh, dropping the charges or prosecuting him. So he wants to dot his dots and cross his T's, and we've got to give him that opportunity. D.A. Braggs was very nice to us. He was very coherent. Uh, He listened to us. We sat with him for an hour, and we believe that he will come to the right conclusion and drop the charges uh, of Jose Alba simply because public, not just public opinion, But there's an outcry. The mayor of New York City said, you know what, after viewing these tapes, we believe that Jose Alba is a hardworking man, and I back hardworking people in this city. You know, he also said that the wife of Simon, who repeatedly stabbed Jose Alba, should have been arrested. She has not. So D.A. Bragg is really taking his time to make sure he doesn't make a second mistake in this case. And listen, we're going to give him the benefit of the doubt, but time is of the essence. Jose Alba is living in prison, in his own mental prison, because he believes that he was doing, he was, it was self-defense. It was clear as day. And you know what? Thank God that videotapes, high-definition videotapes were recorded, because if they weren't, Jose Alba would be facing 20 to 30 years in prison. So I I tell 
every bodega owner, every small business owner that's vulnerable to looters, to shoplifters, to thieves, to murderers, to a people that assault, have high-definition cameras. They will tell the story better than what you can. There's no way of denying what happened when you can see it. And that's what the nation has seen. And that's why the entire country is calling for D.A. Bragg to drop the charges uh, of Jose Alba. Listeners, we have time for a few phone calls about the case of Jose Alba, the bodega worker charged with murder after a fatal stabbing that supporters say was a clear case of self-defense. The Turner Diaries sold over half a million copies. Who do you think is buying it? Eric Rudolph, the Olympic bomber. Wade Page, who shut up the Sikh temple. Larry Ford, developing typhoid and cholera. William Carr with the cyanide bomb. Anthrax, ricin, botulism, C4, IEDs. I could go on like this for hours, and all of them are white supremacists. The latest hearing investigating the insurrection on the Capitol focused on far-right extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. One witness who testified yesterday was Jason Van Tatenhove, a former national spokesman for the Oath Keepers. He said the country was, quote, lucky. There wasn't more bloodshed on January 6th, and this is how he describes the group. I can tell you that they may not like to call themselves a militia, but they are. They're a violent militia, and they are largely Stuart Rhodes. GBH senior investigative reporter Philip Martin has been following these and other extremist groups locally, and he joins me now to talk about how their actions nationally connect here in New England. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Paris. How are you? I'm doing well. So a lot came out of those hearings yesterday. What stood out to you and, and possibly shocked you the most? Well, part of the problem is nothing was shocking out of yesterday's meeting. Um, the what, what you heard was an individual talking about being radicalized online. And that radicalization is deep. And, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and, and those who are being radicalized uh, are standing on fertile ground. Uh, it, you, he talked about, for example, the role of the Oath Keepers. Well, you have no Oath, oath Keepers Paris in New England, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center's hate map, which they publish annually. Uh, you do have hate groups. Uh, and they are being, again, these are, there are many individuals who are being radicalized online. Uh, Massachusetts, for example, according to SPLC's estimate, has 14 hate groups. Among them include the Proud Boys and NSC 131. Now, the Proud Boys have uh, all of these groups, uh, Proud Boys, NSC 131, uh, the Patriot Front, all of them are white supremacist groups. All of them uh, have their provenance or, or receive their, uh, their greatest of, uh, I should say, attention uh, during the Unite the Right rally in 2017 in Charlottesville, in which mm -hmm. a woman was murdered. Uh, and they are all active here in Massachusetts, and they all take their cues uh, from, uh, uh, from online uh, uh, signals. Some of those signals have been given over the, over in recent years uh, it, it, without question by politicians, including Donald Trump. Now, all of these people aren't necessarily Republicans. A lot of them don't even like Republicans, but they are opportunistic and they are taking their cues 
uh, from politicians who are basically saying the same thing about so-called critical race theory, about uh, uh, about the right of a woman to have uh, a woman to choose. Uh, there's the the same uh, vilification of LGBTQ people. Uh, and so that's why uh, the ground is fertile, because a lot of the stuff is being propagated online and a lot of young men and women uh, in, in less numbers, but a lot of young men are responding to these cues. I see. And it's it's been just a little over a week, Philip, since we saw the white supremacist group Patriot Front marching through the downtown Boston. They were masked. Some of them carried shields and flags. How does this group compare to the ones we learned a little more about yesterday? Again, this is a group that uh, was formerly known as Vanguard America. These are neo-Nazis, fascists. It doesn't matter what they uh, describe themselves or how they try to uh, basically uh, uh, tone down their message. These are, are individuals who basically admire the brown shirts of, um, of, 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 of Nazi Germany, pre-Nazi Germany, uh, and, and Nazi Germany, who basically served as paramilitary for the Nazi party. Uh, and, and they see themselves in many ways as a paramilitary for, um, uh, for whatever might happen next, including the, the right-wing uh, politicians assuming power, far right-wing politicians assuming power. They see themselves as a small army. And this is how, the, uh, the, uh, uh, this is how Anti-Defamation League, for example, describes them as a small army of extremists. But this small army can cause a lot of pain, as you know. Marching through downtown Boston, unopposed, it seems, by uh, law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement seemed to have been taken surprised by these people. Uh, and they are basically trying to make a presence, uh, make themselves known throughout New England. The same thing is true with a group called NSC 131, an explicitly neo-Nazi organization. And the same thing I should say about the Proud Boys, who showed up at meetings throughout in Nashua, New Hampshire, all last year, uh, a board of education meetings, trying to uh, basically uh, rally uh, those parents who were there against, again, the teaching of the centrality of racism in American history, uh, what they uh, falsely uh, call uh, 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 critical race theory, and, uh, uh, and even against COVID uh, mitigation efforts. Uh, so these people are throughout New England they represent a threat uh, to the to the to the broad public, and the Patriot Front marching through downtown Boston again was no surprise. But it's part of this large movement of uh, or accelerating movement, I should say, of extremists that are trying to make their presence known in New England and across the United States. And we know that one man um, is alleged to have been attacked during that march last week. And, and you mentioned the, the presence or the hesitation of law enforcement during that march, Philip, and, and the fact that they had sort of no, no knowledge or, or no forewarning that this would happen. Talk a little bit about how, I mean, are they investigating these groups? And especially given what, given the march last week, could that be ramped up? Um, could there be more expectation for law enforcement to act more swiftly when these things happen? Well, these things will happen again, because as I said, the Patriot Front, their whole modus operandi at this point is to uh, parade, uh, to hold banners over freeway overpasses. Many people have seen this throughout the, uh, throughout the state, uh, to pass out uh, flyers uh, in the middle of the night in places like Quincy uh, and Salem. And so, yes, uh, U.S. Uh, Attorney Rachel Rollins' office 
Uh, others are basically, uh, the, the Boston police, we understand now, are basically being more vigilant about the presence of these individuals and about the damage they call to the psyche of the American public uh, and to um, and, and efforts to basically intimidate uh, folks uh, through um, by taking advantage of First Amendment guarantees. They are, in fact, uh, 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 have the right to, to march through downtown Boston. Uh, they don't have the right to hold up traffic, for example, which they did. And it's, it's small, it's things like that, which the Boston police seem to have paid no attention to. Holding up traffic, attacking this man, uh, Charles Merle uh, III, uh, there seemed to be, have been no um, uh, inclination on the part of the, of the Boston police to, to stop these individuals. Part of that, again, is uh, the, the First Amendment seemed to have played a role in how they responded, but also some, some suspect that they just did not take these people seriously enough. Well, GBH senior investigative reporter Philip Martin, we know you will be continuing to following this and we will check up, check in with you as you do. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Paris. You're listening to GBH News. Billy Holiday, I sing your blues. Bet your life against me and I swear to God you lose it. Motherfuck the cops, we still sang it for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still sang it for St. Louis. Motherfuck the cops, we still sang it for St. Louis. Recent deadly high-speed police chases in the St. Louis region have brought renewed attention to the vehicle pursuit policies employed by the city and county police departments. During a two-and-a-half-week span this April and May, seven innocent bystanders died in crashes that occurred when suspects ran into other vehicles during these pursuits. These deaths have prompted the St. Louis City and St. Louis County NAACP branches to take action. And here with me now to discuss is St. Louis City's NAACP President Adolphus Pruitt. Mr. Pruitt, thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's a very important conversation. So you and St. Louis County NAACP President uh, John, John Bowman have met with the chiefs of both police departments in the city and the county to discuss their pursuit policies. What did you learn? What was most striking to you about what you learned? Well, you know, we learned that both had the same philosophy and and their policies are roughly the same. What we did learn were two significant, I think, differences. So in the city, every police officer on a monthly basis does an electronic survey uh, to test their knowledge of the pursuit policy. And if they don't pass it, they have to keep taking it until they pass. In the county, uh, you learn their pursuit policy during your initial training when you become a police officer. After that, the only time you get any additional training or uh, on the policy is when the policy changed. So in one department, they're at least testing them on a monthly basis to ensure that they uh, understand the policy and have retained it. And in the county, there's no testing, there's no follow-up. And even more strange, we, the, the city, we asked the city, well, what do you do if you have an officer who took the survey and it took them 10 times to pass it? What happens? Do you track that? What, what do you do with the data? And we haven't gotten an answer yet to that question. Hmm. And even with this training, this renewal of the policies, you're calling for these policies to be changed. Why and what would you like to see 
in place. Yeah. And, and yes, we, we call for some changes, but the one reason we, we want to make sure that the retention of the policy is that the police officer who is on the street and decided to do a chase, that he's following the policy, he's retained the policy and is following it. But what we want to see, some of the changes we are looking for at at this stage of the game is has more to do with one the, that the police department has within their policy or within their management system the ability to track and make sure that officers are adhering to the policy. That's number one. Number two is is that those items or those things that we deem we deem to be uh, minor offenses should not result in a police chase. There was a study done. Uh, by the Justice Department some time ago, which basically said 90% of the chases uh, started with uh, either a stolen car, uh, some sort of traffic violation or expired license plate, uh, uh, some sort of minor offense that had had they stopped the person, they would have wrote them a citation. But it led to a chase, and that chase led to somebody being, being harmed. So we want to narrow that window in which they can they can uh, justify doing the chase. And you, I mean, a lot of the reason you're starting this work is because the families of these victims have come to you and said, listen, these petty offenses are not worth the life of my family member. Is, that's at, what you're abs- hearing. At, absolutely. When, you, when we hear from the family members uh, and even those who have survived a, a, a uh, accident as a result of a chase. When we hear from them, the stuff we hear is horrific. Uh, uh, those who do survive, some of them, their lives are ruined. It's, their life is over. And so, yes, we, that that is most definitely one. And in some cases, we lose in police officers, very good police officer. We lost in St. Louis County in uh, December, I think, of 2020, uh, 21. We lost, lost a very good officer out there. So one of the things I thought was interesting was that you found that they're using those spike strips um, to stop a chase. But you've actually found um, that departments that are using GPS DART systems, like the St. Anne Police Department, um, that this could be a better technology for actually apprehending. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned because St. Anne Police Department, is the chief was quoted years ago that, hey, we would chase you till your wheels fall off. So that scared the heck out of us, but they've advanced and they're using that sort of technology. There's a, there's a technology called digital siren that's being used in uh, Mobile, Alabama, and a couple of other places where if the police decide that they're going to start a pursuit, they hit a button and it sends just like an Amber Alert out to uh, every phone within a mile radius, alerting them that hey, there's a spot, high speed chase about to take place or it's taking place be on the lookout. And so it's, it's technology like that and those advances that we want the department to incorporate, and those are some of the things we will be asking for. And this GPS chart system, I assume it's you kind of hit the car with a GPS tracking technology, and then they go to wherever they're going, and then you can apprehend. Absolutely. The it shoots okay. out and has adhesive on it. It sticks to the car, and then they don't have to worry. They know where the car is going. Uh, they're following on GPS. They know exactly where it's going and where it stops. Do you think there's money for that in the budget? Do you think the departments would be willing to buy some uh, of this technology? Um, w- w- you know, I think if you if, if they measure the amount of monies and dollars they're using fighting lawsuits or losing lawsuits and balance that out against the cost of using some of this technology to avoid some of that liability, 
I would think that they would make the right decision and move up to that technology. You would also like the threshold for police chases to be a little bit higher. Where, how do you make that determination of when a chase is necessary or not? Do you look at the level of the crime that occurred, or how, how does that? I, 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 you know, in, in the state of Washington, uh, they just fixed this. Uh, in our estimation, in March of 2021, uh, they passed a piece of legislation, and it goes statewide. And basically, the, the threshold is this, is that they cannot pursue a vehicle unless they witness it leaving the scene of a crime or unless somebody, that, that vehicle or the occupants in that video, vehicle uh, cause the immediate threat or harm to somebody. That's it. No other reason. That's it. Either you witness them leaving a crime and you're chasing them and because you know they they done it, or two, uh, that you have a very good idea that that person uh, uh, poses an immediate threat uh, to to, to uh, someone's life or harm. In the weeks to come, uh, the Justice Department is the federal Justice Department will act as a mediator between you, the St. Louis County NAACP branch, and the city and county police departments. And in fact, actually, one of those such one of those conversations happened yesterday. What can you tell us about uh, what you discussed in that meeting? And based on that meeting and your conversation so far, are you hopeful that change can happen? Yes. Um, uh, our conversations yesterday with the Justice Department, uh, it was a very good meeting, long meeting, but very good meeting. And uh, the outcome of that meeting, we were able to narrow down six specific areas that we think would be a part of a mediation agreement that the Justice Department would present to the police department in the, in the very near future. Uh, we uh, were very uh, uh, enlightened with the way that uh, the Justice Department responded to the issues that we brought up. Uh, they felt that uh, we didn't put anything on the table that was not realistic and that the departments could not adopt and do. And so we anticipate them reaching out to the departments uh, sometime next week uh, and begin to schedule some meetings so we can start the mediation process. And we look forward to uh, uh, a successful mediation at the end of the day. So as we told them we would like to have the thing wrapped up by the end of the month, by the end of July. We'd like to have all this wrapped up. And they feel that uh, based on uh, uh, what we presented, that that's quite possible. St. Louis City NAACP President Adolphus Pruitt, thank you so much for coming in today. No, thank you for having the conversation. I'm aligned with us this morning, Jerome Wright, Vice Chair for Voice Buffalo. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, of course, uh, coming up on Friday, the Tops on Jefferson Avenue is scheduled to reopen. Some uh, applauding that fact, others not, including you. Uh, you are against 
reopening of the tops on Jefferson Avenue. Outline your argument for us this morning, please, Jerome. Sure, thank you. And and, and I want to make it clear, I, I do not speak for everyone on the east side, but I do speak for the many who have voices that I have talked to and who have gone unheard that think that uh, it is wrong to open store on several levels. First of all, um, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, this is what we're talking about. It seems like our lives don't matter here. Anywhere in this country, at least, where uh, members of a community have been murdered, massacred, and slaughtered, they have always memorialized that faith in ways that dignify the, the people who suffered and the community who was traumatized. However, in this case, there's no, there's been no talk of even doing that in any significant way. We have heard also for the last two months that that neighborhood is a fresh food apartheid, that there isn't enough options, and that that store offers you know, a, a, a very important service to the community. What about that argument? That argument is valid, and when I talk to people on the street, that was their concern because some people don't have the wherewithal to go uh, places beyond the area, the immediate area. And it is that we say that they could open another store right there in the area. There are plenty of vacant lots and areas that the city already owns and is doing nothing with. That can so they told them it takes three years to build a store. You and I watched us build the hospitals during the pandemic, which need more technologically advanced uh, stuff than a store that needs refrigeration and electricity for equipment to work, like like cash registers and, and scanning machines. We could have done that, but nobody talked about that. What about the fact that nobody's talking about the the governor, the president? All of them came here, and although they thought they gave thought, felt hearts and prayers, none of them gave action of what to do. And opening the store should not have been one of them. The action should have been they should have been giving tax breaks to every establishment that is willing to come in here. All these shop right, save a lot. All of these stores should have been given the opportunity to come here. It's been almost two months, and they've re- completely redid that store. In that same amount of time, they could have completely built something that would have been serviceable enough until we had more people, more, more stores. Listen, sir, we are back to square one. What will stop a copycat from coming to the store now? Again, it's the same thing. One store for our community where all the black people will go. That's where we, that's where started this. We, we did nothing to ameliorate that. You uh, filed a, a petition on change.org. We'll uh, put a post on, uh, I should say, a connection on that, uh, on this story on WBFO.org. But uh, uh, what has been the response so far to that p- petition? Well, it, it has gone out. I'm not monitoring the numbers because I am out on the street talking to the people. Again, I don't want to be the voice of the community, but I do want the community's voice to be heard. And that's why this is being said. Not many people are talking about all the other issues attendant to this, the resources, the reinvestment, and the restoration of that community. Nobody's talking about that. They're just talking about reopening an eyesore and a traumatic memory that haunts this community. It's not about being scared to go in there. And that, and that, that racist murderers did not win. 
He did not win when we did not tear that store down, all that community. He did not win when we did not implode on each other, race against race. He cannot win because we are a community of love and spiritual enhancement for all people. So I'm not worried about that. But I am worried about the fact that somebody else can come and do the exact same thing because we did not change that condition at all. And then finally, a larger conversation here, and interesting that you are, like you said, out on the street talking to people, so you have a good feel for this. But what are people what are people saying now? What's two months uh, since May fourteenth, five fourteen, and uh, we know we heard from people early on who didn't even want to go out of their house because uh, of what happened. Uh, what is the sense of the community right now? There are a lot of people who still will not go past. That store, that area will not even walk over. And that is unfortunate. That is a part of the trauma. And, you know, some people are getting help. Some people need help and and don't want to seek it or haven't been able to seek it. And a lot of people don't have somebody that looked like them professionally that they can go and talk to. The, The mood is that while that racist murderer is locked up, the real killer racism has gone unapprehended. Nothing has changed. We've done nothing. And food apartheid continues to go on over there with nobody saying anything about it. That is the fear. The fear, the only reason why that store is, is even allowing to be reopened by that community to any extent is the fact that they fear that if that is not open, they will have nothing like they had before that. Let me remind you, that Tops wasn't the best one in this community. It wasn't the cheapest store in this community. So it didn't serve this community in, in, the, in its full benefit and capacity it could have. So I hate people talking about that's all we got. You Sometimes you just can't settle for anything. You have to take nothing till you get something better. And right now, I believe many in that community are willing to do that. Jerome Wright, Vice Chair for Voice Buffalo, joining us this morning on WBFO. Jerome, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for your opportunity to speak. You have a good day now, sir, okay? We'll talk to you soon. You too. Thank right, you. Bye-bye. They're making it happen now. We've got the spirit. A lot of spirit, yeah. We've got the spirit. Just watch it happen now. A 27-count federal indictment has been handed down against the 19-year-old who has been held since the May 14th massacre at the Tops on Jefferson Avenue that claimed 10 lives and left three others wounded. Anthony Bruce, former assistant U.S. attorney who's often checked in with us here on WBFO with some perspective on various cases, joined us earlier this morning. The guts of the indictment itself doesn't tell us anything new. In fact, the The complaint that was previously filed had a lot more information in it. But they've done two things. They put in some forfeiture allegations, and if you go through the forfeiture allegations, it's really asking for the forfeiture of what was his arsenal. Um, I don't know that the arsenal in and of itself is important in the indictment, but all of that arsenal will be proven up to the jury during the course of the trial, and that's pretty incriminating if you think about it. The second thing they've done which I think is more important, is they've told the world now, officially, that the wheels of justice are turning 
toward the death penalty. There are a whole series of uh, special allegations, uh, special findings at the end of the indictment, which are only necessary in an indictment that seeks both uh, to find him guilty and to find that the death penalty applies. Now, the indictment itself doesn't say that they're seeking the death penalty because, like I said, the wheels of justice are turning. Um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Buffalo has obviously requested from the Department of Justice in Washington authority to seek the death penalty. You say the authority coming down from Washington, we're talking about the Attorney General would make yes. that determination? He will ultimately he will sign off on it one way or the other. The sign-off will be, yes, please, yes, go seek it, or no, you don't have my authority to go seek it. But that's that's still in progress. But to get to that, they had to, they had to file these special allegations or these special findings. So it is a, there is a road or a path for that to happen. What about from the Attorney General's standpoint? How discretionary is this decision? Yes, it will be whether or not he thinks it should be pursued, but it won't be just a uh, sit in your office and flip a mm-hmm. coin. It will be a well-reasoned decision, and it will be based on a lot of input that comes through the death penalty section of the Department of Justice. If it does come to the death penalty, what about for those attorneys and those people that have to uh, pursue this? As I think I said before on your station, in terms of proving this case, I don't see it as a particularly difficult case. It's There's a lot of logistical concerns in getting all the evidence to the jury. But with his manifesto, uh, with the evidence of the scene, the case is fairly easy to prove from a guilt or non-guilt standpoint. The problem is then taking 12 uh, good people from the Western District of New York and convincing them uh, that they should vote to uh, to impose the death penalty in this case. Defense attorneys then also have a would have a huge uphill battle for, for sure as well. Uh, and can you put yourself in their shoes just a little bit? I know your, your background's as a prosecutor. Yes, I think what they've got to do is they've got to delve into this this defendant's background, everything everything they can dig up about him that shows that this was an aberration and that the death penalty shouldn't apply in this case, um, which is, is a, an incredibly high thing for them to do. I mean, obviously the, the government has the burden of proof, but on the other hand, uh, he had the arsenal. If they're able, if the government's able to prove all the things in the special uh, findings, um, they've got an uphill battle, I would think. It, but the uphill battle is is fought with the evidence. It's it, To me, it's a psychological battle. Do the people, will the people in the jury uh, be of a mind to put this guy to death or to, to find for the death penalty? Anthony Bruce is a former U.S. Uh, assistant U.S. attorney. He's helped us uh, frequently with uh, some of these complex cases and uh, does so again this morning. Thank you very much for joining us on WBFO. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. 34-year-old Michael Walker lamented that Buffalo was now the site of one of the deadliest incidents of racial violence in recent U.S. history. This is their Emmett Till moment. The lynching of Emmett Till in 1955 inspired civil rights protests across the country. The pretext for his notorious murder was that the 14-year-old made improper advances toward a white woman in the Jim Crow South. 
That woman later admitted he never touched her. We now know that police issued an arrest warrant for her role in the kidnapping, but never arrested her. Well, that warrant from 1955 was recently found in a Mississippi courthouse basement, and relatives of Emmett Till are calling for police to serve the warrant and charge Carolyn Bryant Dunham with a crime. Jeribu Hill represents the family of Emmett Till. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Ari. Will you begin by explaining how this document, 67 years after it was first issued, was unearthed? Yes, uh, a team of five people, including family members, went to the basement. The access was given by the circuit clerk, Elma Stockstill, allowed us to have access to the courthouse where the documents were found. Uh, We considered it to be somewhat miraculous since all of the officials had been telling us that uh, if there was a warrant, they didn't know of its present existence. It was just found in a box in the basement. I mean, it's a box in a basement labeled 1955. Hmm. And what was so interesting is that everything was found at the same time, the warrant, the affidavit of arrest, and also the uh, capius was found as well. So all of the documents that you would need in order to have served this woman in 1955, were present and available in that box. Carolyn Bryant Dunham is close to 90 years old now. Do you factor her age in at all when you consider what the family wants to see happen next? Okay, I do not. I'm very respectful of the fact that people can live longer and have. But no, I don't factor it in because Emmett Till is laying in his grave at 14 years old, Mamie Till died before she got a chance to see justice for his lynching. For 67 years, Carolyn Dunham Bryant has been allowed to escape even real interrogation, let alone prosecution. And so what would you like to see happen? What would the family like to see right now? We want to see that warrant served on Carolyn Bryant. We also want her culpability to be the subject of an actual grand jury hearing. And we believe through addressing her culpability that at the very least, there will be a full-fledged investigation. What we hope is that there will be a trial where she is charged with a kidnapping that led to murder. This is your hope. Have you had conversations with prosecutors? What are U.S. attorneys telling you? Well, we've had conversations with the district attorney in the 4th District. He is solidly of the opinion that there is no new evidence. There is no cause to explore these questions and these demands that we're raising. The Department of Justice, as you know, closed the case once again on December 6th of this past year, citing that there was no new information, no new evidence. And so if the district attorney is not eager to prosecute and the Justice Department says the case is closed, are you at a legal dead end here? Uh, No, we don't believe so. We believe that because there are laws on the books that speak to expiration of a warrant and the warrant does not expire, we believe that it is necessary to get before the proper judicial body. And so because of that, we're going to press forward. We are not going to stop until we force the issue of accountability. Accountability can take many forms. Why is it important to you to see a criminal trial and a conviction? It's important for us to see that because what we're seeing here is a longstanding double standard rooted in white supremacy and the white woman pedestal theory. And now in the 21st century, we're challenging law enforcement and elected officials in particular 
to do their duties to see that justice is done and to strip away the final remnants of the double standard that still prevails to this day. Jaribu Hill is an attorney for the family of Emmett Till. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you. She's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Albino Very, very good job. You're a test. Come over here. There you go. I want you guys to stay where you are sitting. I will get around to as many people as I possibly can. All right. Very good job. Here we go. You guys reach up and say, Look, you need him. It is very smooth. A lot smoother and softer than you might think. Oh, reach up there and say hi, Chiquita. Wow, oh, look how brave you guys are. Great job. Oh, uh, reach up and say hi to your pet. Okay, that's fine. Come on up here. Wow, good job, ladies. Did you say hi? Wow. Have you? Well, you're an expert. Very, very good job. Will you guys reach up and say hi, Chiquito? There you go. Say hi. Do you guys want to say hi? There you go. Wow. Wow. You guys are doing a great job. Wow. Wow, here you guys go. Reach up and say hi. Wow. Oh, stick on your head. Very good job. All right, guys. Very, very good job. Did everybody like Chiquita so far? Yeah. Now, did this snake try to jump right out of my hands and every nervous mom in the general area? Yeah. No. Guys, if nothing else but I want you to actually learn that the way the animals are portrayed in movies and television versus real life is two totally different things. Now, I want everybody out here to listen to me very carefully. I do not want to have to say this twice. I am one of the only entertainers I know that can create a boss without a five-year-old. So, very carefully. Pick you, and only when I pick you, and put your hand, I want you to come and stand right up here with me in a straight line. I love asking this question, guys. Where are some of my brave people? When I touch your hand and only when I touch your hand, I want you to go stand up there. You can go stand up there. You can 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 stand up there. And I think that's probably about it right now, guys. Let's have everybody in a straight line. I want you to come down closer to me a little bit, guys, right over here. Over this way. All right, I want you to be standing real close to each other so you're touching shoulders with the person next to you. Let's make a straight line, straight line. 
Straight line. There we go. Very, uh, boys, come on over here. Both you stand right there. Come on over here. All right. Now, guys, did this animal try to jump out of my hands and eat me? So do you think I might have it secretly trained to jump out of your hands and eat you? No. But, guys, he's moving and heavier than So I need help, everybody. Let's take our hands, put them out in front of us. All right. We're going to start now here, guys. I want you to hold on. Hold on. It's going to crawl right out of your hands. Hold her up. Hold her up. Hold her up. Hold her up. Watch this. Don't give her a pillow. Don't worry. Don't give her a pillow. Nope. Thumbs down. Very, very good job. Now, guys. Not at all. You guys. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 16, 
2022, so I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, questions, suggestions. The number to dial 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. few things before we get to some of the folks who dialed in. Um, we should be here now. I have to confirm from Monday and Wednesday, and the program for Tuesday is somewhat uh, contingent on the Wednesday program, so I'll explain it all out and just remind folks of our uh, social media and what have you. You can always check, make sure the program's uh, airing and all the rest of it, but we should be here Monday. Uh, white man, another professor, University of Buffalo, who does research uh, on racism, specifically so-called environmental racism in Buffalo. Uh, he should be with us on Monday, Dr. Jason Knight. Uh, we'll see if he knows about the 22 caliber case uh, and then talk about his research as well as how that applies to May 14, 2022. Tuesday. Now, I go to Wednesday first because that explains Tuesday. So Wednesday. There's a white woman doctor, Dr. Silver. She did, or she was a part of the report that I think we aired maybe two months ago, talking about efforts in California to have a label placed on cannabis products, warning consumers that this product may lead to psychosis. Said, hey, Dr. Welsing told us about this in 2013. I said, hey, let's talk to Dr. Silver, see what she has to say. So have to confirm she's out of town, but she should be back in the States uh, or wherever to confirm uh, for Wednesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, long as that's taking place, we will do our rewind oldie but goodies. Uh, we will go back and hear uh, the compensatory call in from the end of July 2013. This happened two weeks after the conclusion of the Trayvon Martin murder trial and then one week after Dr. Welsing was with us to discuss that case and then she within that shared her thoughts about cannabis consumption a week after she was with us the first compensatory call in wow it is the only time I can think of where legions not all but legions of cows listeners dialed in to vociferously voice their disapproval, their rejection of Dr. Welsing's views and thoughts. I remember it was, man, I cannot wait. I cannot wait uh, to go back and hear. Uh, there were even some people who said, man, that old Dr. Welsing, she, she probably hadn't even been around no black people. Dr. Wells out here talking all this gibberish about cannabis consumption and psychosis. What, who, 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 who is she anyway? Get all this. Maybe act like she's been around black people to be telling us what to do, what not to do. Whew. 
memory lane, as they say. Dr. Silver is with us on Wednesday. We will revisit on Tuesday, so we're prepared and what have you. Any of the folks, if you remember, like, I think I might have been one of them folks who called in to say that Dr. Welsing is on some pseudoscientific BS and she doesn't know about black people. What's she doing out here with this rubbish telling us not to do no cannabis? I'm gonna go get an extra blunt right now. This old crazy Dr. Welsing lady. I knew she I knew she was crazy. I said that if that was you, feel free to chime in because hey, it's been a decade. Maybe people have reconsidered. But I can't wait. So that's Wednesday Tuesday and Wednesday and then Thursday book club Catherine Pellinero what to say we heard Rick James a little bit at the beginning last week in the book club matter of fact I'll come back to that later so the book club is Thursday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific still mandatory for more reasons than I have time to explain Friday neutralizing workplace racism and Saturday compensatory call in so if uh, our guests confirm ready to roll we should be here Monday through Saturday white people permitting now got that out of the way let us go back the final segment albino affairs in fact I'm going to give it to you this way so the day after all you heard about the reptiles and Chiquita the serpent and what have you the day after that that was Tuesday on Wednesday I was at the very same beach Richmond Beach where I am right now I'm out chilling in my hammock, chilling so hard, I fell asleep like good sleep, where I didn't even know what time it was, like what is going on, slept so hard, I woke up, there are two chicks who are about mm, 10 yards in front of me doing their bikini sunbathing thing, I have no idea where they came from, how did they end up right here, like what is it, I'm totally out of it, like super great nap uh, on Wednesday. So I wake up like, whoa, what the heck? When did you? Jesus, what's going on? So after I get my bed, it's like, oh, okay, had a good nap. Whew, calm down. So I'm back getting my thoughts together in my hammock. and But they're close enough so I can hear their conversation. So one obvious white woman, the other racially ambiguous, but she's really tan. Like, uh-oh, this might be non-white person with a white parent or just a non-white person. So they're hanging out. I don't know how long they've been there, but I've been awake now for maybe 10 minutes or so. So the white woman looks at the other female and says, hmm, so are you so dark because of your mom? Now, again, who is ignorant about racism, white supremacy? Who is color conscious who doesn't pay attention to you know melanin concentration and all we just don't even think about that hmm tone on this one is important because she didn't say it like hey we are out here sunbathing Dr. Welsing moment for sure we are out here sunbathing I mean hey I'm trying to get some color on this whole pale hide of mine like wow you got that golden complexion just you don't even it wasn't said like that is mm. shame your pa couldn't find him a nice white woman he had to get that old <sighs> dark mother of yours isn't it that's the tone <laughs> that she said it was not a it was not complimentary at all 
the non-white female, like I said, she didn't respond like, oh yeah, you know, I've all, my mom has that golden complexion, that dark and lovely and just, wow, radiant, even in the wintertime, still radiant, got that melanin, no, 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 no. yeah, what are you going to do? <sighs> Ignorant about racism, white supremacy, that's Richmond Beach on Wednesday the day before I was going up to lounge in my hammock as I love to do I'm going up there's a van they've got all these crates and what's going on they said oh man are you here for the reptile show like reptile show what are you talking about this is going to be a reptile show it's going to be great the kids are coming up from camp oh god like I came up for quiet like Jesus Christ let's leave I am so glad I did not leave so I go hang out and they take, I don't know, like a good hour to get all this uh, finally set up and everything. I'm in my hammock, by the way. So I've been chilling out, had my breakfast in the hammock because I'm watching the ocean, loving my day. Finally, the children come, they set all up. And actually from my hammock, I have like a front row spot because they're kind of directly in front of me. I'm technically part of the stage setup, but I'm way over to the side and all that. But front row viewing. So they, you know, hey, do you all want to see an animal? Blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. Okay. Pay out. Very first animal they pull out. Chiquita. Why is it named Chiquita? Because it looks like those bananas. Chiquita banana, right? I don't eat Chiquita bananas. Uh, They generally are not organic, but whatever. Uh, Albino python. I just said I was about to leave. I wasn't even going to hang out. I was going to go, this is a beach, man. They got lots of spots to put the hammock up. So, I mean, hey, I don't have to be hostage to the the reptile show. Dr. Welsing wanted Gus T. Stay. Listen. Fuller said, learn something about everything. You're not an expert on reptiles. Darn tootin'. Darn tootin'. Albino python. Now, the interesting thing, I almost got the very beginning. I missed like maybe the first 30 seconds or so. The white person in charge, he did not emphasize with these white children, hey, the the albino python chiquita that we are all marveling at, this is a mutant. Welsing moment for sure, for sure. You shouldn't even see one of these. I looked online, they said, hey, these are so rare this is like a, a one in ten thousand type of a thing oh, 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 oh let me read it exactly because I strive for accuracy I minimized it fortunately true albinism occurs very rarely in the wild according to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department some say it happens only once in every hundred thousand births others claim it is even more rare one in a million we miss you Liv he didn't say all that at the beginning like you all are looking at a rare mutant hmm Frankenstein he didn't do it like that even the name Chiquita oh it's a little banana oh look at it it was like 10 feet long and they brought he got the children said he wanted the brave ones so all the white children came up they're like uh, let's say 8 to 10 younger children 
So they come up there in summer camp and all, you know. Man, pause right there. If I lived here in our summer camp, we could go to Richmond Beach every day and kick it. Oh, my God. If I had been born here, there would be no cows. Guaranteed. Continuing. So they get the 10 children, they come up and they hold Chiquita. You, heard, you can make a little pillow for Chiquita. Now she didn't try to bite you, did she? No. She's so soft and velvety. Yes. Wow. Isn't that amazing? What a mutant. She's so soft. Okay. They go and they put Chiquita down. Bravo. Next critter. He says, I got my whole family. His white wife and his white daughters and all that. He says, I got my daughter here. Bring her up. Say hi. Hi. Okay. She loves the critter. She loves Chiquita. And I said, you know, I don't want to trick you all and think, you know, they just are trained with my family. So I got her own snake. Whammo. What does he pull out? You know he didn't. Yes, he did. Albino serpent number two. And did you catch the name? Cotton candy. Words are important. Like, wow, these are just, I love fruits. Who hates bananas? Smoothie, banana split. Oh, cotton candy. Who hates? That is the best thing ever. It's so sweet. And yeah, bananas are sweet too. Oh, and they burst out. And she's a tiny little albino mutant. She doesn't get any bigger than four feet. He's got his little dart. Again, I didn't hear him say another mutant. You should never even see one of these. Dr. Wells said they used to say some of the black people in dilapidated housing under white supremacy would say you got so many roaches, you even got some white ones. I really could have recorded the whole thing. I stopped lame old Gus T. I stopped right. I'm out at the beach. I didn't come out here to record this whole lame reptile show. I got enough. Cool. I can share it. Whatever. Man. So you heard the names for the first two albino critters. Chiquita cotton candy now they start to bring out the dark dark what they call it the dark spaces competing with the bodegas anything black the African snail anything negro black dark oh god it's gonna be ruination will kill us all man they started breaking out the negro reptiles Alligator snapping turtle. Oh, jet black. Contrary to Chiquita, the alligator snapping turtle, which I had never seen. Woo, rough skin, got spikes on its shell. He calls one of the children. I mean, now you want to talk about contrast programming? Oh, all of this is just Dr. Welsing. Dr. Welsing. She talked about. All of this explicitly, even white people's fascination with albino critters, all of it, and how this relates to why we have a system of white supremacy racism. They get that Negro uh, alligator snapping turtle, and I believe even called him a black alligator snapping turtle. His name, he didn't get licorice. Or some old cool food. No, 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 no. What did they call him? Black get back later, Gator. Everybody say hi later. Hi later. Get on out of here, Negro turtle. And it was so deep, the programming. 
Now, you all can tell me, like, Gus, you're wasting our time. We got the Buffalo thing to talk about and Emmett Till and lots of things. The web telescope. You're wasting our time talking about your goofy critters at the beach. That's not what Dr. Welsing said. They pull out later. They didn't say, oh, where my brave people come up and pet uh, later and all that. No, 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 no. He grabbed one child. He said, you're brave. He said, now, which finger do you want to lose? He didn't make that sort of macabre joke with a python or cotton candy. He didn't do that. The child still, what? What finger? Well, uh, 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 I don't want this old nigger uh, turtle to take a finger. Like, what did I sign up for? He said, oh, you scared? You want me to get somebody else? He said, well, no, I'm not. I'm not scared. But I mean, you got this old nigger turtle and, you know, I want to. He says, oh, okay, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Okay. He says, here. The alligator snapping turtle. We'll show you why it's got its name. So he pulls out a toothpick with a hot dog on it. He says, here, got to be careful because if you see these out in the wild, like, oh, man, you go to take a tinkle at the lake, you're out fishing or whatever, and they see you, hey, they don't have the best vision. They're just looking for food. So, you know, you might have your feet in the water, put a hand in the water, and reach out and grab a whole finger, grab a toe. The child is sitting there holding the toothpick like, oh, my God. God, what did I get? I came to go to the beach. He says, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Here we go. So then he gives him a stick that is safe size. We'll say maybe five feet long and bam, hot dog on the end. No losing of any fingers. So then they give a demonstration and say, all right, come on later. Let's see if you'll do it. Whammo. And he crunches through the hot dog and he talks about how much force he has. He can snap your finger. And I'm like, wow, this black snapping joker is dangerous he might castrate us all doesn't even that's not even the end of it so the very last after they get back black get back get on out of here later so the very last critter they break out a melanistic komodo dragon now this one he did emphasize, and I'll take this one if you want to say, hey, Gusty, you lazy bastard. You should have got out of your hammock, got his phone number, and interviewed him like, Jesus Christ, what is wrong with you? That is a disgrace to the legacy of Dr. Welsing. You might be right. I was not prepared for all this. I came to chill out in my hammock. I was not. I didn't know. My bad. He said they only breed albino Komodo dragons. We don't do that with his organization. We only breed melanistic Komodo dragons. Get darker as they age. That's what he said. Jet black. I mean like charcoal black. It looked like a piece of charcoal with legs. Stunning. Never seen anything like it live in person. Now... The super nigger Komodo dragon melanistic. Dr. Welsing talked about those too. She said those animals, wow, extra because the albinos, they have vision problems. I was even thinking that like, man, Chiquita and cotton candy because it was like 77 degrees, sunny day. Like, whoo, the sun is leaning on us hard. Can we get back in the shade, in the cover? Like, come on. You know we do not do sunlight well. We can't see well in the sun. Like, come on. Let later hang out. You got all that melon. He can deal with all this. 
they break out this highly melanated Komodo dragon. This is the only critter he has to put gloves on to handle. Children get excited. Oh my gosh, there's a Komodo dragon in the cartoon. Ah. So there we go. Now they want to go. Whoa, 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 whoa. This isn't Chiquita. Can't just come up and touch her. He has to turn the Komodo dragon around so you literally are getting the ass end. You can pet that. Staff member comes up and the guy says, Oh, can I grab? He says, Oh, no, 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 no. You can't do that. Jesus. He says, Man, these Komodo dragons, they'll bite you and paralyze you. He did the demonstration like, You'll be frozen. You won't even be able to move. He says, man, these things, you got a baby one here. This is like, I don't know, maybe hmm, two feet, maybe two to three feet. It's not very big. Maybe 15 pounds, maybe even less than that. Not very big. He said, hey, when these things get grown, they can be 600 pounds. Eat a whole pig. He says, no, can't mess around. You can't rub his head or anything like that. Like, you could bite you and paralyze you and have you all over there and then chunk a chomp out of you and rape you and everything else like my god negro dragon here gotta be careful and then they packed the negro komodo dragon away but man if I had known all of this was going to be taking place I would have had a list of questions why are you only breeding these melanistic ones why does everybody else breed albino komodo dragons why do you start with the albino serpents why don't you mention that these are mutants you shouldn't even see one of these much less like two like that's getting struck by lightning you saw two albino serpents in the same day you should get a lottery ticket lots of questions I even had in mind like is that part of the programming too we start off with two albino critters so that these white children will be extra calm and oh we didn't start off with some nigger serpent or squirrel or dragon or whatever we got a nice white critter that looks like us oh and I could be totally wrong but what this did go for 30 minutes we started with two albino serpents and then got progressively blacker and blacker and blacker and concluded black it back bottom of the boat nigger komodo dragon which he only breeds richmond beach is a magical place even in fact i think they're gonna have a magic show this week i might need to go to that too they might be chopping niggers in half or something uh informative i have to see what's going on for tuesday oh we have a program tuesday maybe not maybe not anyway albino affairs that did happen dr welsing thought all of that was very relevant to white supremacy racism and why this problem endures let us see uh, the only two quick things that I'll say then we can go ahead and get to folks who dialed in there were two separate reports one of them uh, Tamba Baba I think that's how you say her name that was the young lady 18 years old in Canada uh, where she had the physical altercation started verbal and then physical with the white man at the store or what have you uh, and then the situation with Nicholas Gunn where he was at the art uh, fair or art festival uh, and ended up being assaulted and called a nigra 
uh, because he went to try to take pictures of somebody who had their art weight artwork at this festival. Now, I'm mean, hey, I don't have any artistic talent, but I would think if I drew something or made a sculpture or a painting, whatever it is, wow, somebody's impressed. Anyway, not, oh my God, this nigger's trying to steal my artwork. What are you doing? Did you put him in the headlock, nigger? What are you doing? Ah, ah. I don't know why that would be thrill. Why would you even go to an art festival if you're that concerned that somebody's going to steal your artistic property? copyrighted if you're that concerned anyway I think it's important because both of those incidents they were not like a 10 second somebody just drives by and calls you a nigra and that type of thing these went on for a significant length of time when I say significant anything that's you know over 60 seconds where I gotta be standing around and standing around and all of like you heard that was a long exchange with this young lady and this race soldier same thing uh, for Nicholas Gunn at the art festival I'm of the opinion particularly for children I cannot emphasize that enough since these were both young people I do not think that that is safe in a system of white supremacy I don't think that's the best choice to have these sort of long exchanges with some stranger race soldier in public you have no idea am I talking to Peyton Gendron Am I talking to Joey? You really have no idea. I've, I've We've closed the program saying this. Hey, you should be thinking she, he, they could be armed. You got a cell phone. I got a Glock. I take that every day. If I'm a race soldier, I take that every day. Record till I run out of bullets. How about that? particularly Mr. Fuller said this on our program like a decade ago you get out in public and you hear some white person and they start nigga this and coon that and blah blah blah, blah and it is time to exit as quickly as possible there are so many times or situations I just mentioned Trayvon Martin there are so many times where these situations escalate and it's not I got a chip tooth a bloody lip which I mean hey I'm not feeling having to make an unnecessary trip to the dentist smile is important trying to go at the beach that is not anything to minimize but I mean why that could have been dead on the spot same thing with Nicholas Gunn this 18 year old you got a gang of white people here pushing you and nigga this and chest bumping and all the rest of it time to leave I've said that before about pulling out those phones be really careful about that because I've seen so many instances where you pull out that phone it escalates like oh this nigger is going to record I'm going to give you something to record nigra I've seen that over and over and over every age group all over the world maybe if you're going to pull out the phone be in a vehicle where you can Bam! Key in the ignition and out of there. If anything escalates, they pull out a firearm. Anything else where it looks like, whoa, this has gotten dramatically more unsafe. Exit time. And I even remember that. We had one. Uh, it was a black male. He was terrorized by a white woman in a uh, Starbucks parking lot. He was in his vehicle 
and he was recording and she's going in her rape you niggers and, blah, 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 and all this and you get out and rape and blah, blah, blah. and he's recording. he said i don't care record nigga record nigga matter of fact i'm gonna throw my car on you nigga i'm gonna throw my coffee on you nigga what do you think about that what do you think about that out here record and he rolled his window up and like oh unless you're in a vehicle, if you're just out standing i've seen way too many reports where they pull out the phone and the beating continues and or intensifies all of that to say again these were children I personally avoid those type of long exchanges I'm not going back and forth person at some white person and oh you know I'm not going to talk to me like that none of that generally solves any problems exit this sort of thing and that's one of those where I say hey now unless we go back and forth. He's called you a nigra. You're not going to talk to me like that. You're going to be courteous and all that. Okay. If this escalates and this is Peyton Gendron, I'm ready to die right now. No problem. I'm recording and that'll be, you know, my last five minutes. I was out recording. If you fine, no problem. If you are armed, you got a code about counterviolence and you're ready to roll. Fine. But all of that talk, especially to your children, I don't think we and that's any of us anyone classified as non-white these sort of incidents I could be dead in the next five seconds and I would say especially just because I just said his name two times Trayvon Martin especially I'm saying the exact opposite of what they said and I was kind of disgruntled about them saying particularly black females I can think of way too many instances where a situation like this where a black male of any age even children died on the spot they didn't have a little dental problem and a little cut that sort of thing they died on the spot and not just they died on the spot for Trayvon Martin died on the spot and then got blamed for being murdered that's what I've seen over and over and over and over for black males in particular Anywho, uh, the only speaking of black male privilege, because I did say that with this report, Michael Cox, what a name, but that is his name, Michael Cox in Boston, Massachusetts, black male who is now the uh, chief of the police department. We did context of white supremacy, 13 years. Comprehensive. We had Dick Lair on the program in December of 2009, first year back on the air, his book, The Fence is all about Michael Cox who was almost beaten to death by his white colleagues and left in an alley 1996 as you heard 95, 96 might be off by a year I think it said the end of 95 but almost beaten to death they didn't give all the details you should go back if you haven't been with the cows for 13 years go back and listen to that program with Dick Lair to find out everything they did to Michael Cox because they didn't just beat him almost to death and leave him bleeding and unconscious it was whoops I think this is one of our co-workers this is not some raping nigra Ooh. same thing they do when it's any other nigra they didn't go and get CPR and oh my god we gotta save Mr. Cox oh man get him there oh. nah 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 then after he does get to the hospital he lives through this and all that he's trying to pursue this and go through correct channels as they say to get justice they stalk him 
they're parked outside his house like they got him under surveillance like he's still some sort of raping criminal we got to keep our eyes on you nigger what are you up to you trying to call al sharpton jesse jackson johnny cochran you trying to make some trouble out of this you just took a few lumps upside the head you probably were trying to rape a white woman what are you doing who are you talking to who are you on the phone with hmm? who's coming by to visit you the fence is the name of the book dick lair december 2009 13 years context of white supremacy well, my man said, my man said, I should start saying that. Check my resume. Mm, Eric Brian Stone. Uh, the number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. One important, important component that I forgot, that section where they spoke with Nicholas Gunn, who was at the art fair in Minnesota. Excuse me, Michigan, Michigan, my fault. Accuracy is important. He said that they were in Benton Harbor. He went over the bridge to St. Joe. He said, and his family did tell him, don't go to St. Joe. Oh, I said, is St. Joe not a sundown town? Eh, Racially restricted region. James Lowen database. What does it say? St. Joseph or St. Joe in Michigan, while St. Joseph was never all white, it is an interesting town in its contrast to nearby Benton Harbor. Connected with St. Joseph by a bridge, Benton Harbor was 94.4% black in 2000 compared to 94.6% white in St. Joseph. And just for perspective, It is a six minute drive across the bridge from Benton Harbor to St. Joseph. 94.4% on the Negro side, Benton Harbor, 94.6% six minutes away in St. Joe. It continues. According to a resident, the bridges separating the two cities have relevant meanings I have lived in the St. Joseph Michigan area for the past 12 years interestingly a few years after moving here a local resident claimed to me that until recently St. Joseph had an unofficial curfew on blacks and would actually enforce it by raising the drawbridges over the St. Joseph River that connected Benton Harbor with St. Joseph thus making it much less convenient for Benton Harbor residents who are almost exclusively Negro to get into St. Joseph. This is email testimony from December 2006. In 1970, there's a stark gender imbalance. 83 black males and only 36 females. Also, 45% of the black residents were CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. I'm lying about that last part. Forty-five percent of the black residents were inmates of institutions. <laughs> Fortune 500 companies. Come on now. Woo! I'd like to know what uh, penal institution did they nab in St. Joseph? Like we don't want any niggers here, but if you got any raping niggers that need to be incarcerated, drawbridge is down. racially restricted regions now 
No metaphors for any of the cows programs. I'm going back to the book club now. So the book club is mandatory for more reasons than I can explain currently. One of them, the homoeroticism is on like every page of this book. So we read two days ago, talked to a black male, uh, Ernie Smith. Ernie says he was co-workers with Joseph Christopher, worked with him for like a year or more, said that they got high together, reefer. He probably thought Dr. Welsing was on some pseudoscientific BS too. So in addition to smoking reefer with Joey, Ernie said we fooled around and wrestled. Joe is two or three inches shorter than me and a little lighter, but he was strong. I could handle him, but no way was it easy. Ernie thought it bothered Joe that he couldn't handily win their wrestling matches. Fooled around. That's what he said. Now, in this same pair, really almost on the exact same page, a sentence or two later, he says that they fooled around with street girls. I just looked up the phrase fool around to fool around when two people usually not currently in a relationship find themselves kissing participating in oral sex sometimes but not always can refer to having sex sometimes fooling around is used when the specifics of a hookup are unknown fooled around Indeed, I thought that was van. Particularly, we fooled around and wrestled. The book club is mandatory. Words like this are so important. I think sometimes people reveal more than they intend. Fooled around and wrestled. Sometimes, frequently, these metaphors sayings convey values of white supremacy the dark spaces dark day negro komodo dragon that type of thing we could be mindful about metaphors not using them be precise explicit with what we want to say i will give reminders about the metaphors thank you kindly words are important and a central component of counter racism science the number again is 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. I went to open the line on the switchboard and it's not hmm how odd I have to see if this is like a general problem with the switchboard not working correctly so as other people dial in with hands up I'll see if there is uh, some sort of problem uh, with the switchboard or what have you um hmm how strange yes as other people dial in star six one if you have commentary uh, to share, I'll see if there's an issue with the switchboard. I tried to see if we could get Rob in San Diego, but it's not working. How odd. Hmm. 
Well, I don't know. Maybe Rob in San Diego. Maybe you muted yourself. So if that's the case, feel free. If not, I am not sure. That is so bizarre. Like, uh, hmm. I will try and see if there is a... I'll try a different browser and see if that does it. But wouldn't be a program if we didn't have some uh, switchboard issues. Hmm, let's see. All right. Different switchboard. Let's see if it uh, works over here. Okay. Nope, still not doing it. How odd. Hmm. Well, it seems it's not doing it for Rob, but I'll try for other folks as I uh, see other people who have uh, commentary uh, hands to share. Incidentally, while folks are getting their thoughts together, uh, spectating the, I said yesterday, I think we were talking about the Buffalo Tops reopening, and I mentioned how Sandy Hook and some of the other schools where they've had like shootings uh, and mass killings, that sort of thing, uh, that they've closed a lot of these institutions down. I mentioned uh, Sandy Hook because that's one uh, that they did close down. Uh, and then I mentioned uh, the school in Florida, Parkland, uh, where they had uh, the shooting Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I mentioned that one yesterday and I said that I thought that they uh, also raised that building where the shooting took place. They have not destroyed that structure from the reports I saw online. Uh, that structure cannot be destroyed or anything. Uh, it's still a crime scene until all of the legal proceedings are done and apparently that is not the case. So what they did do was build an entirely new structure for students to go to school so they are not going to the same uh, area for classes and all the rest of it. I guess they'll figure out if they're going to tear it down or whatever uh, after the tri court proceedings uh, are concluded. Uh, that is not always the case. Certainly they didn't uh, tear down like Columbine uh, after the shootings there in the 90s or what have you, but I would say especially more recently I've seen this more frequently where they have some sort of mass shooting and they do not keep the structure. Uh, even some of the folks uh, who came to the reopening event at the Tops over this past weekend uh, they came out to, or I don't even know what you call it, they came out to recognize the reopening, but they did not enter the facility. And they said specifically, they just, you know, that was not even a possibility at the time. And I can tell logic, logic. Anywho, let's see. Hmm. Well, for Rob in San Diego, I'm not sure if you are muting your own line, you can uh, unmute, I guess, if you have commentary to share. Uh, it is not uh, allowing me to unmute although the other features on the switchboard are working so I don't know uh, what that is if you want to hang up dial back in maybe and see if that works uh, and I can get your line if you have commentary to share and then hopefully other folks as they are done with their spectating uh, they have commentary to share I'll get their lines and we can see if it's something specific to Robin San Diego or I don't know switchboard issue I don't know what's going on but yeah not able to get the uh, first few lines uh, where people have a hand up uh, star six one and I'll see yeah this is a group thing or what uh, what is the deal how bizarre let's see yeah and I've tried several several other browsers uh, if we have any folks if you have commentary to share uh, do not wait till the end press star six one it'd be great to get one now so that I can kind of see what's happening with the switchboard uh, unless just everybody tuned in to spectate uh, and had no commentary let's see hmm okay let's see 
Rob dial back in. So let's see. We'll wait for him to dial back on. Oh, see now, the one worked. That's why I said I didn't know if it was specific because it is working for the other people. So I don't know. It might be a Rob in San Diego thing where your line specifically is not working for some reason, but you dialed back in. So we'll see if yours is working. Uh, 2262 switchboard is working, so you should be with us. May have you heard? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, um, I did just have a question. Um, I guess it's more about how have some of the um, uh, uh, victims of racism uh, dealt with attempting to provide constructive information to other victims, uh, ones that are a part of your quote-unquote family, who are who have been, I guess, severely mistreated by the system of racism, white supremacy, and are reluctant to listen to any type of uh, language which uh, uh, places onus and culpability on white people. That is, that is my question, because I currently uh, recently just dealt with a family member who is um, totally uh, rejective of even listening to the cows. Um, so that is my question, and thank you for taking my call. They say join the club, like many, many, many in that uh, category where we are totally uninterested in listening to the cows and or discussing uh, learning about white supremacy, racism in an accurate manner as a total system throughout the known universe. Um, well, I mean, hey, the evidence is that we've not been very successful at this just from what you're reporting. That's very common. Uh, we've had lots of folks who have. Uh, come up with with phrases and things to explain all of this racism avoidance disorder and all the rest of it but non-white people have been very successfully brain trashed to as you said reject honest dialogue about white people white supremacy racism uh, I've concluded uh, one of the best things that you can do is not to force it uh, family members friends all that uh, if they, you know, don't want to talk about it, I'm not listening to that coon Gus. I don't want to hear anything you have to talk about or whatever, whatever. No problem. I wouldn't force uh, the topic conversation on them. Uh, I heard Mr. Fuller say today, uh, all of the roads lead to racism, white supremacy. That is a metaphor, but it is accurate. That is what is dominating the known universe. So uh, if this is someone who is not white, particularly if they're designated as black, like, oh, man racism white supremacy has been a problem for them their entire existence and it will continue to be so so it'll just be a matter of time one of the things that i encourage is keeping what they call lines of communication open so that you all can still have constructive conversations about other things if it's diet exercise yoga drinking enough water whatever it is other constructive things uh, and then at some point if they are interested in racism white supremacy hey you are ready to go and if it gets to a point where they have some sincere curiosity about this on their own they really want to know like you tried to mention this before like I still don't want to listen you know to that Negro Gus but if you got some books or other content let me check it out or we can you know sit and talk maybe I can ask some questions and hear what you're saying that sort of thing um, I've seen that works a lot better than going the force route because yeah we've just been so contrained a lot uh, so conditioned frequently 
we just become even more resistant uh, when you try to, you know, you gotta, you know, check out this Neely Fuller or, you know, read this section of Dr. Wells and what, like, I've just seen where it becomes a total rejection. I'm not going to do it. I don't want to hear anything that you're, you know, talking about with all of that and can just be a source of frustration for all. So, yeah, I'm a big advocate for just keeping it constructive. You maintain, uh, it doesn't say that you have to talk to the person every day or 50 times a day or text them constantly, but you all talk, you're courteous, cordial, uh, talking about constructive things. And then, Hey, when they are ready to learn, take advantage. Uh, that's my suggestion. Uh, if we have, uh, any, any folks who have met with maybe, more constructive results uh, talking to family members who don't want to hear about all of this and you figured out a way to kind of get them to be a little bit more receptive or they can be a little bit more patient and ask and it doesn't become an argument where they just want to joust and disagree and go back and forth where it's really something where hey I'm I am listening you know I'm asking questions you know getting information so that I can go and evaluate and think about some of these new concepts or I mean really what we're doing when we present counter racist logic trying to inform someone about white supremacy racism you're asking them to change a lot of their perspectives the way that they think about white people even the way that they think about themselves you know they probably don't go around thinking about themselves as a victim of white supremacy and all the implications of that so it is it is a lot to take in and uh, we are free white people have conditioned us to really reject any information on all this so yeah I'm a big advocate of not forcing and keeping communication constructive when it does happen so that if they do end up developing an interest they will contact you uh, if we have other folks uh, if they have uh, thoughts on this uh, like I said if you have some tips that can help you know kinda make this go a little bit better absolutely star six one would love to hear it uh, let's see other folks who dialed in that we missed totally if you have a hand up proceed switchboard is working this time other folks who dialed in with a hand up are there and they're still spectating on us but uh, let's see uh, while folks are getting oh I was gonna ask I forgot that one if, if any of the folks known universe if any of the folks got opportunity to see some of the uh, NASA their new telescope the web telescope did they get to see any of the images if we have any educators or folks who uh, are attempted parents if you shared any of the images uh, with your offspring talked about that even in a counter racist context hey <laughs> individuals classified as white they make it their business to go out and do intensive studying even looking at the people who built this telescope and all of that like that could be a great opportunity to teach your offspring and what I said going to the university and college libraries for research projects hey who built this any black people involved who's working on this who's studying the images see what we can find out about this but yeah I did want to ask that if any folks got to check out the images uh, folks still spectating folks who have a hand up should be with us can I be heard can I be heard can you hear me yes sir 
You can hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, greetings, uh, Rob in San Diego. Greetings to the callers and the listeners. That's the host. Thank you for the program. I don't know what was going on. Uh, with the audio at first, so what I did was I just hung up and called back in. Um, I'm just leaving the plantation, um, and I really didn't get a chance to hear um, the audio segments today, but I just wanted to uh, call in and just share some commentary. Um, it's been a pretty tough week. Um, you know, on the plantation, um, I'm one of the older employees at the job, um, working with um, people my children's age, um, which is, uh, like I mentioned, one of them is my supervisor. So that um, just creates a different dynamic. Um, and I don't, like, I don't feel... Like, cause I'm a older black male, right? And I'm working, um, what some would consider, uh, low, um, like a low wage, um, no chance for advancement type of job. Um, but like, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't feel bad about that. Like, you know, I look at my life. Right. Um, I'm estranged from my mom. Uh, my mom been uh, addicted to crack cocaine since she was 14 years old. Uh, that hasn't stopped. So uh, I really don't have a mother. Um, I don't have a father to speak of. And um, I live in one of the most expensive cities in the United States all by myself. And I've been here for going on five years. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, um, wake up every day and just try to have, um, some black self-respect, um, whatever I'm doing, uh, I try to do that to the best of my ability and, um, just try to keep a positive attitude. Um, I look at, uh, things that I've been through in my life, um, targeted as a young black male, uh, by the criminal justice system. Uh, police oversaturating our neighborhood, um, and I was um, a victim of this white supremacist system um, before I graduated high school, uh, and I was an honor student. Um, right before I graduated, I was 18 years old, and I was uh, sentenced to 13 years in a correctional facility, and I did five years, um, and that altered the course of my life, and um, after that, um, I was still able to, uh, put my life, um, that's the metaphor. I was able to, um, get back on track. I can't figure it out right now. But after I got out of prison and I was, um, doing the correct things to be a productive citizen of this society. <clears throat> um, I was injured in the fight. Um, I was assaulted by two people. 
which is my cousin's. Uh, and that assault happened in 2012, and I'm still dealing with that every day, um, which is now it's a disability, disability being defined as anything that alters your regular way of living your daily life. And, um, yeah, so looking at everything in this totality, I'm doing all right. And uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I just wanted to just uh, share my commentary. Um, but the cows has been a um, something that I can look forward to, uh, just conversing with other people and sharing you. And uh, thank you for taking my call and I'll meet my line. Blackmail privilege from Rob in Southern California. Much obliged, sir. I don't know what's up with the audio because I think a few folks, um, it seemed like there was some sort of uh, difficulty. You know, he said, I think Robin, uh, California he said he dialed in and I was trying, I was pressing the button, you know, to unmute his, unmute his line and wasn't working. So could usual suspects just leave it at that. Um, even to what the mail caller who dialed in and asked about, you know, uh, sharing information with attempted family and that sort of thing. That's what I mean. That's so widespread. That's not everybody, but I mean, so many folks just we we do not have the sort of quality relationships that's why it's attempted family and care unit and all these other terms because we just don't have quality relationships because of white supremacy racism now, I didn't even hear uh, Rob say that you know he was estranged from family members because he was trying to share Neely Fuller Jr. or Cow's episodes although I think he has said before the same thing he you know with his offspring he was trying to do the intelligent thing teach them about racism that oh my God, what are you doing? You're teaching them to hate white people. What is wrong with you? Bigot, angry black dude, all the rest of it. So, I mean, that is very, very painfully common in the system of white supremacy racism. So that's why I say as a victim, just try to do the best you can by minimizing conflict. If talking about racism is going to generate conflict between non-white people, you just don't talk about it wait until they're ready to talk about it and if they're never ready to talk about it well then victims guarantee qualified for them too and we just you know minimize our our conversations and <laughs> keep things pleasant and courteous uh much obliged rob in wisconsin and they have many non-white people uh in positions where they said oh my god white people have placed us somewhere with uh no chance for promotion and raises advancement and all the rest of it some low-end job like that is the system of white supremacy racism. Like they do that for black people who have PhDs. Magna cum laude and all the rest of it. And they get stuck. <laughs> Low end job. Some no count white person who maybe dropped out of school. A la Mark Furman. Now I'm going to be your supervisor. And then they get you to feel like it's something inadequate about you. No, the inadequacy is the system of white supremacy racism. That's what we're trying to correct. We can all be building telescopes. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Oh, it worked. <laughs> they call it, uh, the call from Wisconsin, uh, uh, I guess he had the uh, remedy uh, because I did the same thing. Uh, I uh, called back again 
uh, I think I heard Dr. Welsing say a long time ago, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Uh, uh, with that question, uh, I wouldn't bring up the topic. Uh, I would wait until the person uh, asks me about it. If I would ask them a question, I would ask them, well, what would you like to talk about? Because, you know, uh, if there is such thing, and I think it is such thing as racism, white supremacy, eventually that subject is going to come up. Uh, and uh, from there, learn how to learn how to ask questions, put, put, uh, what you want to say in, in the term of a question uh, for the person that you're talking to. Uh, if you have a frequent uh, contact, verbal contact with that person, uh, it's probably would be a, uh, a easier uh, pathway to uh, gravitate into talking about racism white supremacy but i wouldn't i would i would not be the aggressor in that i will let that person uh bring it up uh but you can ask the question what would you like to talk about uh if you have that type of you know relationship with the person to where it is a frequent uh encounter with that person uh yes um uh, other than that, I'm looking forward to the uh, the uh, replay of uh, that uh, Dr. Welsing uh, moment. Uh, I remember, I remember it vividly, uh, the conversation, and especially listening to what she had to say. Uh, it was uh, quite profound on what she had to say uh, during that that session years ago. And uh, those are the only things I can think about right now. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. We will get to see, was retired firefighter, was he one of the callers <laughs> who was on, Dr. Wells, I don't know what she taught you. You know, I've been saying for years, you want to talk about some pseudoscientist? That has been the case. I knew that. I read the ISIS, but I knew it was something fishy. Now she's going to be talking about King Smoke and do no cannabis. Man, I am never. We will see. Was retired firefighter in that group? Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I am joking with folks, although I have not. Although, man, oh, man. Now you want to talk about a day to go get some cherries and sit in the hammock by the beach and to listen to all that? Woo! I was tempted, but I'm going to try and see if I can wait and just listen to it with you all. So I haven't heard it either since whatever it is, nine years, almost 10. But my memory, retired firefighter, was not one of those individuals. In fact, I think he did call and say, you know, Dr. Wells, it sounds pretty logical about that. That uh, sobriety would be best thing does seem 
logical, I think, because not everybody dialed in to say that Dr. Wilson was crazy. Uh, I think he was one, and we'll get to it'll be great. We'll get to hear because some folks did think it was logical, but wow, it was lots of you know pseudo scientific BS. Maybe Timothy was right. It was quite a bit of that cannabis. Can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, commentary that they would like to share. We have our caller in Florida uh, as well. Uh, any of it, don't wait till the last minute. We have other folks if you have commentary, especially if you have anything on the uh, family component sharing with folks sh- about racism constructively please share do not spectate uh, caller in Florida is with us anybody else if you have commentary proceed yeah I'll be heard <clears throat> caller in Florida yes sir yes sir thank you very much sir greetings to Jessica Host, the listeners and callers um I agree on that about the speaking about racism with uh, family members or acquaintances or anyone like that. Um, because I do remember when the, it was the Christopher, uh, Christopher Dorn, I think that's what his name was. And I know that's, I think 2013, if, if, um, if I got the year right, um, it was myself and, a family member was we 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 almost got into an argument but you know i just uh walked away and i was listening to the cows at the time and i was still trying to figure out my own way of how to uh approach who to speak about or who to speak with about the system of white supremacy and who i really couldn't speak about it with um, and years later, sometimes it takes that long where that same person started to speak, uh, on his own about things that was connected to, um, racism where, you know, like for instance, if we're watching a news report, you know, he would say, oh, well, man, that's, that's this, that's this ridiculous, um, if that person was uh, was black, then they'd be treated this way. So I'm like, okay, now nah, it looks like they're trying to gain some understanding. And I started seeing another thing, uh, uh, like a, a cup saying, I am black history and all of this stuff started happening. So um, maybe that was like over three or four years, five years. But... I just wanted to mention that to say, I think it's just one of those things where you can just, um, just remain, uh, quiet and only speak with the person if it's something going to be constructive. Um, speak on some other things. The, I did read, um, it was an article about the, the big snails. The, the African land snails, I think that's what they're called, the species, um, one of these nearby counties. Uh, they were found in people's gardens and different other places like that. 
uh, I wasn't aware of it, but they say it's been going on for like the last 10 years, I guess. Uh, so that's been a new one for me, but I did read an article on it. And it does sound like it's one of those or that pattern where even with uh, animal species, uh, in, like any insect or anything like that, where if it's connected to Africa or the color black or, you know, like the the, the spider um, brown recluse, black widow, and terms like that, uh, they'll connect it to the word black or something like that. Uh, and there was another segment where the, I think that was a person from the New York area where they were talking about the reopening, or he, I guess he was one of the people who didn't really want to reopen the tops supermarket. Uh, and, he, and he was very passionate in uh, vocalizing his point of view where he said, that there were plenty of other vacant lots, you know, I guess like areas of property where they could build other um, or another store or something like that. And I was also thinking about, man, what if it could be something like Whole Foods or something, you know, uh, Trader Joe's, you know, something like that where, where there could be healthier alternatives for uh, areas that, have predominantly black residences uh, that would be something to consider um, my last one is where the the uh, the altercation with the white supremacist suspect the race soldier um, I don't know if anybody else heard of that but he when he was practicing the racism toward the victim he said something about uh you know you you know you just couldn't be acting like a decent black person or something but you you just want to act like a nigger i think that's what he said uh, you know you're not like a well self-respecting black person you just acting like a, a a nigger a nigger i guess that's what the blank is so that reminded me of the 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 chris rock i think the the joke where he's saying it's, it's a difference, you know, between blacks and niggas. So uh, other than that, thank you for the program, and thanks for allowing me to speak. Uh, they said they didn't even identify that white man. They got all this facial recognition technology, but, you know. Uh, he, said, he probably said, hey, you know, I love Chris Rock. That that happened in Canada, too, by the way. Uh, global System, the young lady... Uh, Tamba Baba I think that's how you pronounce her name but that happened in Canada um, yeah him saying that to her that yeah you're not even well behaved you know you're not a dignified black person you're just a little nigra that's why I said that exchange went way too long like you, a white person is to even if really if a non-white person was talking to me and saying all of that it's time to go. Now, I understand here she was looking out for a person who worked there. And it seemed like that might have been a black male who worked there. Black male privilege. Uh, but you can call uh, the manager. You can even call the police. You know, he's there harassing and all of that. And just tell them to come and support. 
give a look in all of that. It's lots of different things that you could do beyond I'm going to stand there and go back and forth with a racial. I mean, you could be dead in the next five seconds. I was going to say minutes, seconds. But yes, he did say that well-behaved Negro. Mr. Fuller, dignified slaves, silly slaves. Uh, the it, 2013 is the year of Christopher Dorner. That was the beginning of the year. Black male goes out, alleged shooting rampage, vengeance against LAPD. They talked about that all. We talked about that with Dr. Welsing extensively. I always point out too that situation is nothing to celebrate. If you understand counter racist logic, the first two people he killed were non white people I have no idea how and neither of them worked for the LAPD I have no idea how that solves any problems or you know really sticks it to the Los Angeles Police Department killing a black male they do a lot of that themselves anyway but that was 2013 and absolutely no grouse he said we almost got to argument that happens all the time with family members and so-called relatives and all that where we're talking and we're about to come to blow like Uncle Roger I'm about to grab you by your esophagus you up in there talking madness victim like uh, it can get really right now again Gus T did that whole program about hating to talk to black people hey we get very arrogant even with the people we share DNA we get very arrogant, all the same anti-blackness, some of it more because it's like, I've known you, you know, since you were in diapers or whatever. You're not going to sit up and tell me uh, that I'm confused and don't know what's going on in the world and quote some fuller dude talking about some confused and don't know anything about it. I, I know lots of things. I got degrees and all this stuff. I'm telling me I'm ignorant and all this and you got to edit. Who do you think you like? We it can get hostile real quick. We had a black mother. She dialed in. She said she was trying to uh, share information with her daughter about racism. I guess the mom listened to the cows. The daughter didn't. And she said she was trying to share information. She said her daughter said, Mom, you're just an old racist. And she said she couldn't even get in her counter racist bag metaphor. I'm like, what do you mean racist? What's your definition of racist? Because she was so I just she had a human moment. Like, oh, she was so hurt that her, her child would call her a racist. But as we said, or as Mr. Fuller said, all roads lead to white supremacy racism metaphor. Oh, and we didn't have to wait years on this one. She said she just had to wait, I think it was a few weeks or whatever, and something happened on the job where daughter came home, and now mama is not the racist. These no-count white women I work with are racist. Now it's time to talk. context of white supremacy but yes uh, that's that's one of the reasons and that is a major theme of the cows over our 10 years or 13 what am I doing 13 years plus on the air I've said that forever I think non-white people talking to white people about racism where other non-white people can spectate Mr. Fuller says we're the greatest spectators will spectate when a white person and a non-white person are having honest exchange of views on white supremacy racism, especially where that white person is going to be questioned 
with suspicion and we're going to put definitions to what do we mean when we say racism I've seen where that can have way more of an impact than seeing Dr. Welsing talk to William Shockley that sort of thing even uh, Minister Malcolm X when he was doing his debates I've seen where that can have a lot more of an impact than non-white people questioning and squabbling with other non-white people in fact I can give you a quick anecdote real quick then check in see if any folks have thoughts this here before we conclude this isn't even black people this is all of the individuals who are classified as not white victims of racism this happened on the campus of the University of Washington we were right next to Red Square Cows was in the interim was not quite 2009 we got back on the air non-white male so-called Asian talking to one of his homies He's in college, talks to his friend, so-called, trying to tell her about racism, white supremacy. She laughed in his face. Same thing I just said. What do you mean? You don't know what you're talking about. You silly coon, whatever. Get on out of here. A white stranger, and I mean never seen this fella in life. This fella comes in. Oh, yeah system of racism obvious says a few things blah 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 the friend totally different response she's not snickering and laughing what are you talking about are you some freshman are you some frat boy you don't know what you're talking where did you get this none of that wow I never considered that is that true wow I have to think about it. and I believe her homie pointed that out I'm your friend You've known me. We go back like lawn chairs. How you just blow me off? I'm a student. It's not like I'm some homeless bum. And that's how you know me. I'm a student here. Eventually graduated from the university. You just laughed in my face. She laughed in his face again. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) You don't know what you're talking about. This is a white man. that's what domination looks like so don't be discouraged white people I mean this is centuries of terrorism you had times where black people were killed for just talking about racism many times so there is a reason why you have many 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 victims non-white people who are very resistant to any sort of dialogue about racism any other folks have commentary Everybody's good. Anything else they need to get in? Uh, Gus, you think I can submit another question? Let's hear it. Um, it still pertains to the um, idea of speaking with uh, quote-unquote family members. Um, what would you say to these people who want you to spend time with them, but they want you to spend time with them in uh watching racist programming and well I'll give my own uh, first time experience watching racist programming and then giving a counter racist comment about what I'm seeing and that leads to um, possible um, I wouldn't say a necessarily argument but it does lead to um, 
I guess, more rejection of the idea, even though it's right there in front of them. Mr. Fuller, he says, many look, but don't see. See what? What they are looking at. When you don't understand white supremacy, racism, and that time, it's a read. I'm not just saying that to be saying it. Like, that television, the screens, Netflix, whatever, I mean, if it's on your phone, but that content is so powerful and destructive and saturated with white supremacy brain trashing. I have literally had non-white people where I didn't write them like a 200 page analysis. I didn't do a whole program about, you know, a particular uh, show about how bad it is or anything like that. Like I just pointed out maybe like same thing that you're saying, just made like a couple quick comments about the show. And I literally have had non-white people who have gotten upset. Like, man, I love this show. I tune in to watch it. And now I think about that. Like you messed up my enjoyment for the show, man. Like I always said you were a no count coon. And now it's true, man. Don't you talk to me about anything else that I want. Like I've had that happen. Like people, they get really bonded to these like you said it's about to be fisted like what did you say about scandal I will go upside your um the only with TV and like you said it's so flagrant but I mean hey I used to love a lot of the same content and would have never considered it white supremacy racism so uh it's the same thing if these particularly if these are people that you've already seen where they're kind of not interested they're resistant to talking about racism I maybe wouldn't say anything at all or I'd maybe ask a question because I think that 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 always we always talk about staying in question lane. I found where it can be. It's less likely, I'll put it that way, for conflict to erupt because you're not making statements. It's a lot more difficult. It still happens frequently more than it should with victims of racism. But if you're just asking a genuine question, what do you think about this character? What did you think about this plot? You know, whatever. Uh, where they can even take some time and think about it as, and there might even be something that they think about as they continue to watch if it's like a series or whatever or even if it's a movie type deal and they watch it over and over which many people do myself included where they think about it if it's a character or a plot I found where that can work just given a question you don't even have to answer it now just think about it as the series unfolds just that just one thing to think about and that's it uh, I found with that uh, because, hey, that's really what we want. We really want their brain computer to start processing accurately. What am I looking at? What do I like about this show? That can even be a good one. What do you like about this show? Who's your favorite character on this show? Oh, okay. Why do you like that, <laughs> that type of thing? Just general. Oh, okay. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> Just learning more about this. My relative, right? Uh, and then if you have anything that and they could even think about some of those questions in terms of why they, you know, are so into this program or what to have you, what they like about it and that sort of thing. Uh, I, Dr. Welsing would ask those sort of questions for people about TV. Also, TV watching that's so saturated with racism and such a waste of time. I would try to push to doing something that's not TV. And that doesn't have to be that doesn't have to be connected to racism at all. That can just be, hey, that's. That is so stationary and we can't even chop it up if we're just watching TV. Let's, you know, let's do something, you know, let's let's go for a hike or let's go for a ride or let's go 
to the beach or let's go fish. I would try and think of activities where we can kick it and not watch television. And I, like I said, I know many people, they love TV and that's one of the greatest pastimes in the world. Dr. Welsing and her pseudoscientific BS, let's light one up, puff, puff, pass and see what's on Netflix or whatever. Worldwide, got it. Or, you know, Cracker Brewski, you know, and like, <laughs> like right on, got it. Uh, but yeah, I would try to think of other activities that are not TV. Uh, we should be able to find lots of things to do where we can have a good time, don't have to talk about racism, and we don't have to be in front of the TV. Uh, did anybody, any thoughts on that second question? He, if they, gets invited to watch some old white supremacy content, Real Housewives or whatever it is uh, and he makes a comment or two about the content and then what did you say about Scandal Man I will throw you like uh, any folks have suggestions on how to avoid that if you can altogether or more constructive ways of navigating that sort of interaction 60 seconds or less If, if you do choose to watch the program with the person be prepared to ask questions ask them questions about what they what they watched questions i always think that's great any other suggestions i'm a big advocate of trying to come up with alternatives to watching TV and to have fun because it's I mean I don't care where you are and especially now it's summertime like man let's are you serious like the middle of the summer we got let's go to the farmer's I mean it doesn't have to be anything exotic like we don't have to fly and do a safari let's go to the farmer's market we can get some great fruits and whatever whatever and and come back and make a smoothie or, or just come eat some fresh fruits or salad or you know whatever and chop it up while we're out at the farmer's market like that's way better than you know, I don't know what y'all are watching, but yeah. You know. Or if it's going to be watch, hey, let's pick some different content then. Especially if you know the type of uh, films and things that this person likes, the genre, if you will. Ooh, then I would start saying, hey, we alternate. <laughs> like we're not. You don't just, you know, even if I'm going to your residence, uh, I get to pick if we're going to watch something. Then I wouldn't even pick, you know, something like a documentary. Uh, on Jasper, Texas, and all that, I would just pick something in their genre, maybe even with no black people in it, and the same thing, just a question. How are the, how is certain character, how are they functioning in this film? What are they doing? What's their goal? Because white supremacy, racism is everything. They like prison films. Get Mr. Fuller's favorite, Shawshank Redemption. What's the difference between Red's character, that's Morgan Freeman, and Andy Dufresne? easy Mr. Fuller already got the, the cheat sheet for the questions uh, on that one you can run it right down but yeah that's the sort of thing that I would do and same thing just asking them questions so that they can talk and maybe even hear their own thoughts about what they think about this or their character why they like it why they watch this religiously every week um, yeah like I always think asking questions that like I said that it minimizes it's not perfect but generally it lessens the likelihood of someone getting upset because they get an opportunity to speak I mean at minimum non-white people are told to shut up and you don't know what you're talking about you are literally passing the microphone 
Coon can't be that bad. Let me see. Let's let's see. Let me answer answer your old question here. Why do I like this? And see what they say. Don't interrupt. Share as let them talk as much as they can. I'm learning about my relative. Fascinating. Hmm. Being in Dr. Welsing mode, if you will. Metaphor. Scientist. Learning about racism. This person is learning. I'm learning. Anywho, uh, if the white people permit, confirm, we will be here Monday through Saturday. Uh, two white guests and the long-awaited replay. If you were with us in 2013 talking greasy about Dr. Welsing, we will hear it unedited. What did she have to say about cannabis and the verbose response from Cal's listeners in the wake of the Trayvon Martin murder trial where cannabis was also a factor. That'll be Tuesday. White people permitting. Much obliged for the folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. Uh, salutations uh, to the victims. Uh, the one who dialed in specifically and all the folks really uh, making an effort to share life-saving information, counter-racist logic with your attempted relatives. That's, you know, solving this problem. You know, each one teach an infinite number, as many as possible, because uh, we are so confused. So uh, that is, you know, I commend everyone for trying to figure out a way to get better uh, at that uh, and minimizing conflict keeping that in mind that the goal minimizing conflict and as we heard might have to be patient this might be one where it's this is not going to be we get this taken care of by august this might be one where 2025 dr welsing used to say that that she said she had people who sounded just like our callers from july 2013 i always said dr welsing was crazy i told everybody that woman with all that hair kinky hair too she doesn't know what she's talking about and then 20 years later wow you are a genius I get it she said that happened all the time it would be great if it doesn't have to take 20 years but I mean hey racist white supremacists have done a job on us for generations one thing I can say, I mean, sometimes it's too late, but hey, one thing that can decrease that time is if you start honestly from the beginning, which goes back, we can end Dr. Welsing again. No production, recklessly producing non-white children. That has to be something that's talked about in advance. We're teaching our child honestly about racism as soon as possible so they don't have to get this information 40 years later and lots of unnecessary mistakes and confusion much obliged for folks who tuned in live archive hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening uh, the cows is listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot PayPal button is in the top right corner. You'll see the links for PayPal, Cash App, Venmo. Huge thanks to all the investors who have kept us on the air for 13 plus years. Hopefully, the cows has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. 
you can also hit our wish list, Amazon.com under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged for folks who nabbed an item or three over the years. That's it. Sobriety would be best. Tuesday, man. Tuesday and Wednesday. We'll get to hear that a lot. Tuesday and Wednesday. Anyway, uh, if you're out and about, again, those situations, if you have children, you got to talk to them. Uh, In my view, you do not want your child out having some back and forth uh, conflict verbal exchange with a race soldier that is super unsafe you have no idea if they you know have a firearm have other race soldiers at the ready just too many unknowns and all that could happen and then your child could be charged that's what they were talking about in that segment so exit it is very dangerous if you've got a 16 year old 17 year old they probably are not trained with a Glock with a concealed carry permit and ready to kill or be killed at a moment's notice maybe you got a different kind of 16 year old if you're in a vehicle you're sober buckled up not on your mobile device doing the small things to stay as safe as we can and trying to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning Mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned